grandfather Val Peter, the caretaker of Father Flanagan's stream, and the executive director of Boys Town. Does Boys Town really exist, people ask me? You bet it does. Located in the heartland of America, Boys Town youth have come from many backgrounds and locales. As they graduate, they shall seek new adventures and head for different places. But always, they shall carry with them the spirit of Boys Town. If you'd like to help Boys Town, send your tax-deductible gift to Father Val Peter, Boys Town, Nebraska, 68010. This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking... Who attacked our country? You have declared it subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam. And this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of sex? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting a position on me. We'll never let the truth back some of that boards to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who is the grotto leader? Don't remember the name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today we're going to lay down the third installment in our one slash question mark um, creepypasta series, um, the Contra series. We're going to lay down today Contra 3, but really in a way, this case that we're going to be discussing this uh, this scandal from the 1980s is um, I don't know I feel at least subjectively personally for me is like even bigger than Iran Contra in terms of the horrors and um, the level of evil that is kind of contained in it um, and the extent to which it was covered up because of course lots of things surrounding Iran Contra in the eighties were covered up, but, Mm -hmm. uh, this one is such a sort of outrageous case. And a lot of, I think we've like alluded to it multiple times, um, in previous episodes before, but the, yeah, this is also like, I think where, uh, a lot of threads start to kind of come together because this is sort of the, uh, union of some of the like satanic, like stuff, like in the satanic panic era, stuff mm-hmm. with the, like the Iran Contra stuff like the two kind of worlds of like the more maybe like a Quino world the the spookier murkier kind of world of like uh, occult crimes and things like that yep. starts yep. to like blend in with some of this more uh you know JFK style uh Oliver Stone type conspiracy uh, and we stuff. might add even 
in in a very very uh, bold way the kind of um, VIP pedophile ring uh, or pedophile network kind of scandals that we brought up. Yeah, that, of I guess that's are, true. There isn't really a pedo element to. Well, this maybe is like one example of the. Pedo I mean, honestly, I mean, yeah, yeah, the whole satanic panic thing uh, and Aquino's career both yeah. were tainted with like the brush of like you know yeah. organized pedophilia rings and satanic abuse rings. But yeah, this I is guess the first that's kind time. of. Yeah, that's kind of like part and parcel of Satanism in the like '90s sense of like you know they're they're ritually abusing kids, folks. You know, like uh, but yeah, yes, so that yeah. ties that whole way. Yeah, really like a, a yeah. but really I think as we start to look at it, almost like a proto Epstein kind of scandal, and very similar also to Den, which we talked about the Digital Entertainment Network, um, and uh, kind of using these uh, like high-flying businessmen to uh, throw lavish parties um, and while they're embezzling tons of money from investors and perhaps doing certain kinds of money laundering and then offering up like underage boys and girls to wealthy, powerful people to either, mm, either sweeten the deal or perhaps blackmail them or perhaps both. Um, and perhaps even compromise politicians, you know, political figures, law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. All of these um, <clears throat> things that we would see later on in other scandals all kind of converge on this, this bizarre inflection point of Omaha, Nebraska in the 1980s. Um, mm-hmm. And so today, and, and it's hard to understate, like, uh, I think, like I said, my, my subjective, uh, the subjective importance that this case has had in sort of my um, journey, I guess, into the realm of the paranoid and the parapolitical. Um, because th- this scandal, the Franklin uh, Credit Union scandal, the Larry, Lawrence E. King, Larry King scandal, um, was kind of the first thing that I saw back in maybe like 2011, so almost a decade ago, um, before I had heard anything about, you know, Epstein, before I really knew a ton about Iran-Contra or before I knew about Michael Aquino um, and all that stuff. I think we talked in the Aquino episode about how, like, uh, how earth-shattering it was to, like, discover this figure was actually real, you know, this, like, bizarre Satanist psyop guy. And Mm -hmm. um, I think even though... You know, it's interesting. Like I, so I I came to it through the way probably a lot of people do, which is like this documentary that was supposed to air on the Discovery Channel that was made by a British documentary crew called Conspiracy of Silence. And you can still find this on YouTube in various like pirated forms. The only version that exists of it is like a sort of like a fine cut VHS rip with uh, certain scenes and shots kind of missing. You know, it's about like 75% done. But it still has an impact, and kind of amazingly, it uses as filler music uh, all the songs from Twin Peaks, which ends mm, up being very apropos. That. Oh yeah, yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, that that kind of weird synthy, like the do 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 do, that that kind of thing that would constantly play like on a yeah. loop throughout Twin Peaks. This is the true story of Lawrence King. It is the story of an evil at the heart of America of a cover-up at the highest level. One man is attempting to uncover the full story. John DeCamp is among the most highly decorated Vietnam veterans. 
a former Republican state senator in Lincoln, Nebraska, he is now a lawyer fighting the legacy of Lawrence King's evil network. It's a web of intrigue that starts in our holy of holies, Boys Town, Nebraska, one of the most respected institutions in the United States, and spreads out like a spider web to Washington, D.C., right up to the steps of the nation's capital, the steps of the White House, involves some of the most respected and powerful and richest businessmen in this United States of America. And the centerpiece of the entire web is the use of children for sex and drug dealing and drug couriers, the compromising of politicians, the compromising of businessmen, the worst of all, the corruption of key institutions of government that have the duty and responsibility to make sure these things never happen. And, and it's interesting, like how like how popular Twin Peaks is. Just as a little side note, um, in that it kind of suggests this dark world in early late eighties, early nineties America of like you know secret brothels and like all the rich guys and they're you know mm-hmm. uh, in communion with like a dark entity named Bob and all this stuff. But then you know it's weird that it's kind of always portrayed as just coming out of like David Lynch's like crazy imagination and Mm -hmm. not actually materially like referencing anything that was happening maybe in the real world. I mean, Um, well, I feel like we've talked about this like type of stuff before, like, but I feel like there's a lot of movies like that, you know, like eyes wide shut, you know, is mm -hmm. the the typical example. Uh, I think I mentioned the ninth gate in the past where one of uh, Polanski's like, you know, slightly more obscure, I guess, the more obscure of his two like Satanism movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, like uh, there's a couple, uh, yeah. Twin Peaks like has elements of that. I think yeah. there's a lot of things where like, you know, people kind of hint at the idea of this. Once it gets into the popular discourse is a lot of skepticism. One thing that's really crazy about this story uh, that actually took me like by surprise and kind of caught me off guard a little bit is that, you know, when you look anything up on Google, like, uh, as is, like, very kind of the beginning of, like, the process uh, for us of, like, you know, researching or, or brushing up on any topic uh, for an episode, like, one of the first things that comes up, of course, is Wikipedia. You know, Wikipedia is, despite, you know, not really being considered, like, a, uh, you know, a, a good source for, like, a, a school paper or something like that, a lot of people still look to Wikipedia as a good, like, uh, impartial reference uh for basic knowledge of things mm-hmm. uh you know in fact like if uh, we thought of something uh, uh, on the show like on the fly you know something's come up uh, on the fly in the show a lot of the time we'll be going to wikipedia to like familiarize ourselves with it uh or just get a a big sense of the the terrain of what we're dealing with uh mm-hmm. if you look at the wikipedia for this literally like out the gate it's like it was all a hoax like you know it was like it was completely made up like uh, in a very the, the, like the the phrase they loved to they use, which came out of the grand jury, was a carefully crafted hoax. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like uh, the Wikipedia article, which I think is entitled like uh, Franklin uh, pedophile ring allegations. Uh, that, Franklin yeah. child prostitution ring allegations. So yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it right, right. now, and yeah, maybe yeah. I'll just read the allegations for anybody that like has never heard of this before, which is I think right. surprisingly yeah. like a lot of people. You would think that it would come up more, but maybe because like there's this sort of veil of doubt like around the whole thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it is really murky, and a lot of it 
is like you know uh for like reasons that are understandable in light of like some of the things that happened uh yeah. that we'll go through like they're you know the the testimony like the uh the evidence in some areas is kind of sparse a lot of it is sort of like you know uh, rumor and innuendo but there is like definitely uh you know, so, uh, a fair amount of substance. Like when it comes, when circumstantial yeah. evidence comes together, there's a very spooky picture being painted. But yeah, I, I don't think it warrants what they, uh, what they, yeah. It, uh, it definitely does yeah. not. Um, and so just the way that you know, uh, this Wikipedia article, um, in a very loaded sense, uh, describes um, for anybody who's never heard of this before. In 1988, authorities looked into allegations that prominent citizens of Nebraska, as well as high-level U.S. politicians, were involved in a child prostitution ring. Alleged abusive victims were interviewed who claimed that children in foster care who were flown to the east coast of the United States to be sexually abused at, quote, bad parties. The claims primarily centered on Lawrence E. King Jr., or Larry King, um, yeah, not the CNN host. Yeah, Um, no relation. Yeah, just like a... This is a... uh, african-american republican uh businessman yeah. he was rising actually star. like a big like uh democrats for mcgovern guy like black i know democrats i saw McGovern. that I then saw he pivoted that. to being like a huge like gop dude who was like a a jack kemp for president guy <laughs> so, you know uh very strange yeah. um, so but, and was but, like a super active like you know very enthusiastic black republican kind of like uh you know, uh, someone who would do those, th- like, Candace Owens type Candace uh, Owens, things, yeah, exactly. where he would be like, uh, why, you know, black people need to get off the, the demon rat plantation, you know? Yes, um, yes, but, exactly. Yeah. Um, he would be wearing a, a MAGA hat on Fox News. Like, oh, yeah, day. for sure. Yeah. Today, he would be, like, literally, like, uh, somehow involved in the, like, uh, the vote, uh, you know, lawsuits uh, somehow, <laughs> yeah, and making yeah. the Dem- making it about but, the Democrats are the real racist. Yeah. But anyway. you know, um, yeah, but the, the, just to finish here, you know, I, yeah. the, it said that the claims primarily center on Lawrence E. King Jr. who ran the now defunct Crank, the Franklin community federal credit union in Omaha, Nebraska, and alleged that the ring was quote, a cult of devil worshipers involved in the mutilation, sacrifice, and cannibalism of numerous children. Numerous conspiracy theories evolved, claiming the alleged abuse was part of a widespread series of crimes, including devil worship, cannibalism, drug trafficking, and CIA arms dealing. And uh, it just says here in one little brief paragraph um, about the investigations, the Nebraska State Foster Care Review Board submitted the results of a two-year investigation in the alleged physical and sexual abuse of foster children to the executive board of the Nebraska legislature, who were investigating reports of child sexual abuse linked to the credit union. After investigation, a grand jury in Douglas County, where Omaha, Nebraska is situated, determined the abuse allegations were baseless, describing them as, quote, a carefully crafted hoax and indicting two of the original accusers on perjury charges. Uh, these are teenagers, by the way. Um, the grand jury suspected that the false stories originated from... They were, like, from, young, early 20s at the time. Early 20s uh, the time. Yeah, and, and yeah. the abuse allegations of it was that they were basically uh, probably, like, yeah. 14 to 16 at the time of this yeah, abuse. Yeah, right. Uh, the, the grand jury suspected that the false stories originated from a fired employee of Boys Town. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. One of the largest uh, Catholic orphanages in America uh, who might have, quote, fueled the fire of rumor and innuendo because of personal grudges. A federal grand jury also concluded that the abuse allegations were unfounded and indicted 21-year-old Alicia Owen, an alleged victim, on eight counts of perjury. 
Owen served four and a half years in prison and was sentenced to, I think, 23 years. Uh, separately, the federal grand jury indicted multiple officers of the credit union for embezzlement of funds, including King. Um, yeah, but he served less time than Alicia Owens, which is, yes. uh, like, crazy. Uh, or Owen, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, like, uh, for, and he did, like, commit, like, you know, he was, like, summarily found guilty of, like, huge-scale financial crime, uh, you know, like something yes. extremely shady was like definitively going on that he was found guilty of and went to jail for. Uh, and at the same time, people were like, oh, yeah, and by the way, there's another aspect of this, which is that he's like, you know, uh, involved in this, like, you know, uh, child abuse ring. Um, yes. But like somehow, really, if you read like the jury reports, like a lot of it is like, oh, we're not qualified to deal with this. Like the federal government should handle it or whatever. You know, like they are, mm-hmm. they almost passed the buck on it. But yeah. in the process of doing that, they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, you're being indicted for perjury and you're going to jail for, like, you know, an absurd amount of time. Uh, she ended up getting out after, like, four and a half years, but uh, mm-hmm. she was sent there for, for more. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we're going to see this, like, again and again, like, the, um, the, the twisting of the story at, like, every single level and the really gargantuan effort by like every most levels of government to like do whatever they can to put the kibosh on this led certain people in the government to suspect that there was some kind of cover-up going on and um and and the the biggest forces in that were like a couple senators in the unicameral nebraska legislature um the biggest were senator lauren schmidt and Senator John DeCamp, who eventually became kind of like the face of this story and the yeah. main kind of advocate for, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways and in, in good ways, but also I think we'll, I, I finally read his book kind of cover to cover um, for the first time in preparation for this. I've been like aware of him. He's a main force in the Conspiracy of Silence documentary. Um, which, uh, like, I highly recommend anybody go watch because it gives you, in, like, one hour, um, a very good overview of the main players involved, and it gets some really kind of priceless, like, on-camera interviews with um, particularly, I don't know, uh, tell me if you disagree, but I found, like, kind of the most compelling witness was uh, Troy Bonner, Mm-hmm. who um, who was one of the victims and one of the kids who originally uh, was deposed by the head investigator. Uh, so the, the Nebraska legislature, and I apologize for jumping around here, but there's many different angles to get at it from. Uh, they, they did start a like two-year investigation and they hired a retired police officer, a retired state trooper named Gary Caradori, who uh, went out, hit the streets, and tried to substantiate some of these allegations. And... Uh, substantiate he did I would I would argue um, in a lot of ways and he found at least um, I think he interviewed on camera uh, four uh, of the victims Um, there there were way more um, from I think earlier periods in the 80s when this originally started to blow up Um, I think there were like several dozen kids that originally had made allegations of abuse yeah there definitely are more who you know because that's the thing like around all this like there's so much like the thing about uh uh, troy bonner is that he like retracted everything that he told to gary uh caridori 
probably yeah. under, you know, like a lot of intimidation from the FBI, basically. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the witness or the victim who I find the most compelling is uh, Alicia Owen, because she, you know, and I think that's why she ended up going to jail, because she would not back down from what she believed like or you know what happened to that, her in the face that's of all true that, actually she is the most know. consistent of all the uh, people and she got punished the hardest uh, yeah unless you um, believe that troy bonner uh, because he recanted he gave he testimony then he his, recanted yeah and after, then yeah after gary corridori's plane blew up under mysterious circumstances killing yeah, him and like, sorry for the spoiler alert but yeah just as son. gary corridori uh was telling people that he finally had gotten hard proof like photographic proof of of some of these parties that king was holding and that he finally had the bastards by the balls this time and flew to chicago with his eight-year-old son to um to uh interview certain witnesses and collect information and uh also john DeCamp says uh, investigate the Satan worshiper angle, which he was mm-hmm. getting, he felt like he was getting some leads on uh, when he was flying back in his uh, single engine Cessna. And it just, you know, mysteriously uh, disintegrated in the middle of the air. And um, he and yeah. his eight year old son died. And, um, and yeah. like, if you <laughs> read through either the two big books about this are John DeCamp's book and John DeCamp, I think, you know, he's a, uh, colorful personality uh he Oof. like loves uh william uh yeah. you know uh colby, william he, like, colby yeah, like, we'll, yeah. yeah we'll have to dive in inevitably um, his background he is uh, colorful is definitely one way to put it yeah um, um but there's another book by uh, nick bryant who's like a bit less of like a, an unreliable narrator maybe uh mm-hmm. you know um although and i think he kind of acknowledges some of the uh, you know, difficulties with uh, some of the material and sort of uh, knowing uh, what happened in, in certain aspects. Uh, but, you know, he definitely is on the side that, like, this was a real thing and he believes uh, the victims. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I think, but both of them uh, do describe, like, how much fear there was uh, on the part of all the victims who did come forward. And uh, both of them acknowledged there were people who just wouldn't because they were afraid. And Gary Caridori himself was, like, intimidated uh you know they're like people just did not want this to get out and like people were threatened like yeah in many ways like their careers were threatened uh john DeCamp, you know is convinced that he himself was threatened like on on many uh, both of the authors of these books actually feel that at various points just they, about you know, and, and not just them but just about yeah. everybody including senator lauren schmidt got a phone call on the floor of the legislature one day that was like lauren you're gonna have he relates this in the documentary of like lauren you better uh you better stop looking into this and it is not going to be good for you and he says why not and then he said because this is going to go to the highest levels of the republican party and you both know we're both good republicans and you know uh, that was a kind of thing and uh i think carol stitt who is um the uh who worked at the the foster care review board, um, who was one of the first people to kind of get alerted to some of these allegations of kids and, um, and was a pretty like, you know, fierce fighter uh, of this like legislative or, you know, a supporter of this, um, legislative inquiry. Um, I think she got threatening phone calls too and said like, you're not going to live to regret this. Like Mm -hmm. if you keep going and, you know, lots of stuff. And, of course, Troy Bonner, uh, he claims in his affidavit, which is published in DeCamp's book, that, you know, basically the story he says is that he was, like, strong-armed by the FBI. I think he says in the documentary that they told him um, 
pretty memorable quote of like it's like it it like it's not going to be believed it will not be believed do you understand and like if you keep saying this like we're going to throw the book at you and we're going to throw you in jail for a long time and all yeah. this stuff and like bullied him into thinking he was like totally fucked and then um, actually put him up. This is also in the documentary. Kind of incredible they were able to get this tape. But it's a phone conversation the FBI recorded. And you can hear them. It's like, uh, this is Special Agent Mott, like, recording uh, Troy Bonner uh, calling Alicia Owen. And the whole conversation is, like, they put Troy Bonner up to basically try to entrap Alicia Owen into mm-hmm. suggesting that they had done this for money. Right, and he's like, and I just want to know, like, like yeah. yeah, like, I'm not going to lie anymore. And she's like, well, lie about what? And he's like, uh, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, I don't know. And then yeah. kind yeah. of says, like, I'm not going to jail for you, Alicia. I'm not going yeah. to jail for you. And, and kind of just, you know, he doesn't she, hold it together yeah, very well. She's like, um, well, what have you lied about? And he's like, I haven't lied, you know? Yeah. And it's like, oh, uh, well, then why are you scared of, like, lying, you know? But, yeah. Um, it's very obviously and, and and that is something that's like fascinating about this case again and again and I think we'll see there's like reasons why that like the FBI um, came down like a fucking ton of bricks on like anybody that wanted to talk about this and of course we have to mention uh, who was running the uh, executive branch of the government during all of this and I mean these allegations started to really come out in the middle of 1988 which was a very hotly contested election year where a certain George Herbert Walker Bush was, you know, fighting to uh, succeed Ronnie Reagan and was still kind of trying to duck and weave from some of these Iran-Contra things that had been dogging him. They had mostly kind of gotten away with it. You know, I think as we put in our uh, Contra 2 episode when he's like yelling at Dan Rather, like, these things have been meticulously researched and proven to be false. Dan, and I just think it's a little bit, uh, if you'll pardon my language, it's a little bit disingenuous, you know, or something. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Fucking doing his little, like, kindly wasp routine. um, Yeah. uh, There was, like, uh, definitely an implication that, like, throughout they would encounter, like, the investigators would encounter the idea that this went up to, like, the highest levels and that if it got out, there would definitely be a threat to the Republican Party. I mean, uh, like... Uh, King himself was described as being like the fastest rising African-American star in the Republican Party at the time. Yes. And and he would be like my personal friend, you know, George Bush. Like he was a really big booster of him. It's actually a good quote from uh, Nick Bryan's book where he says, uh, I know some of the people I admire aren't very popular. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) The late Bill Casey of the CIA. And I love former Chief Justice Berger. These are the people I really like to talk to. Bill Casey, I thought so very highly of him, you know, so uh, uh, he would at least boast love Bill of Casey. his connections and, with these people. Yeah. And I will say just tangentially that, like, that's not just uh, that that's not just fun trivia because there's another book that will probably be uh, maybe a, a sequel supplemental episode that's also co-written by Nick Bryant called uh, Confessions of a DC Madam, <clears throat> which traces a... Um, Another uh, arm of the octopus of this network in the 80s that was uh, basically a like a DC callboy ring um, run by a guy named Henry Vinson who was running it with a sort of White House operative slash lobbyist slash uh, CIA operative uh, named Craig Spence who was uh, kind of kind of running this like sex ring operation with Larry King. Um, 
Henry Vinson describes like many instances and like when they were in Washington together, they would have secret service protection. This is under the Reagan White House. And Craig Spence was very close to Donald Gregg, who we mentioned in the October surprise episode, who um, uh, in another case where the feds tried to absolutely throw the book in a crazy perjury trial against Richard Brennecke, Donald Gregg like went there to like testify against him to get him thrown in prison. So you see a little pattern there of like uh, the Bush Justice Department, um, which eventually was run by a CIA agent, Robert Johnson, AKA William Barr, (laughs) um, Hmm. was, uh, got very activist about, you know, uh, going and uh, trying to slam anybody that, you know, alleged these kind of Iran Contra adjacent um, conspiracies. But, um, and that's important too, is that like there is, there is this link to Washington in the Franklin scandal. It wasn't just in Omaha, but Larry King was flying kids from Omaha to Washington, D.C., where he owned a, uh, a, a brownstone in Georgetown, and he would throw these lavish parties and invite lots of high-ranking kind of Republican and government people. And, oh, just before, the reason I brought that up with Bill Casey is because in Henry Vincent's book, um, he alleges that Bill Casey was a regular client of the DC callboy ring that Craig Spence mm-hmm. ran. And um, that at that point, uh, William Casey, who was older at the time, uh, could no longer maintain an erection. So he, uh, but I guess he had a penchant for young men, um, probably like, you know, 18 to 22. And I guess he would just like to watch them like uh, masturbate or whatever. Um, so I think when Larry King says, I, you know, Bill Casey, I just thought so very highly of him. <laughs> that that should tell you a lot about like, because he was probably working for Bill Casey, to be perfectly honest. Um, it, it At least that is, I think, um, in the final analysis, it seems like, like, as John DeCamp says in this book, and I'm sure Nick Bryant argues as well, like there is no way for Larry King to kind of do what he was doing throughout the 80s and be such a high-flying star without having some kind of higher people backing what he was doing because he was allegedly running this local uh, credit union in North Omaha, which is a African-American part of the city uh, that, you know, his whole like outward, um, you know, brand, if you will, was, you know, he was uh, investing in local black businesses. And but he was, you know, it it was like kind of a MAGA, like Trump's going to like, you know, do uh, urban investment program kind of thing. But we're going to like do it with capitalism. And, you know, um, it should be mentioned as seen in the documentary. He was invited to sing the um, Star Spangled (laughs) Banner at the 1984 and the 1988 Republican National Convention. And John DeCamp actually notes that like the first time he saw Larry King was when he was uh, selected as a delegate um, for, you know, the reelection of Reagan at the RNC in 84. And just so happened that Nebraska was put up at the very front of the stage. And so he was there down on the floor and Larry King goes up and I I forget who it was who was with him was like, Hey man, that like, look at that. That guy's from Nebraska. Like he's a big deal. And you know, he had never heard of him before. Um, but then said, you know, he's throwing a big party later. And John Camp was like, eh, I wanted to go walk. I, I thought I was just going to go see a movie. And he's like, if you're a good Republican, a good Nebraska Republican, you are going to be at this party. And he went there and it was like uh, so fucking lavish. I think this was in Dallas in 84. And um, he just threw Larry King, who... Okay, so he's supposedly running this credit union, which has on the books deposits of like, I don't know, like $2 million or something. 
So it's like a very, on paper, a very small credit union. But here he is throwing like a party that probably costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars to throw. He drives around in like lim- in like chauffeured limousines. He wears like, it, he, he, honestly, I mean, he kind of dresses like a pimp. Yeah. And, and he was, I mean, what that, he's that's, he was, being is he like, like a pimp. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, like basically what in like the classic kind of like, you know, um, like player's ball kind of like, you know, like, like he, I don't think he walked around with like a cane with like a diamond on top of it, but like mm-hmm. he, you know, he wore like long fur coats and like three piece suits and had all these gold rings and like, you know, $10,000 watches and was taking like, he's racked up hundreds of thousands of dollars um, on like chartered private jets, like flying around the country all the time. And so people did kind of wonder like, wow, this guy seems to be playing with a lot of money for somebody who took over like a small struggling um, North Omaha credit union. Ladies and gentlemen, the chair now recognizes Lawrence King Jr., a member of the Nebraska delegation for the singing of the national anthem. goes into kind of like even I think his accounts were tied to a different bank uh, like an uh, I think it was called first tier first tier bank which was like I think the biggest bank in Nebraska at the time and actually like they he argues that like first tier had to have known about it as well because like the amount of deposits that were coming in and coming out were so suspicious and um, but he was just living this like high-flying lifestyle and um and cat was able to own property in washington the heart of washington dc and in omaha and um and and had some of the biggest names of like the reagan bush crowd um and you know pentagon officials cia people diplomats congressmen um all kinds of people at uh at you know 
I mean, the, the party John DeCamp went to was like a kind of, but he was shocked at like how many like famous people he saw there. And I guess he said that Ronald Reagan's daughter was like hanging around Larry King all night and they were like really, really close. Mm. So, I mean, Larry King was, uh, I think it's safe to say in John DeCamp's words that he was the fastest rising black star in the Republican party in the 1980s. Yeah. And, uh, uh Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, he, of course, he was chosen to sing the national anthem. You know, there's no like keynote uh, address or anything, but, uh, you know, definitely. But he had quite the yeah, quite typical. the soaring baritone. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very it's something. Um, but yes. Yeah, so uh, but it all started to kind of fall apart from I feel like maybe we should talk about just kind of the nature of the things that were being alleged. There's sure. like for me, there's kind of a break in the nature of the allegations between uh, some of the earlier people to come forward and then one, probably the more, the most prominent uh, both in this story and also in like the world of like American conspiracies in general. But uh, one thing that there's across the board in terms of the allegations about the, you know, involvement in uh, child abuse rings and sort of satanic uh, activities Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's something that's consistent between, uh, all, all this stuff is, is these, uh, you know, very, very extreme allegations. I think that, uh, maybe the, the Loretta Smith stuff is a, is a good place to begin, even yes. though she wasn't actually one of the quote unquote accusers. Um, you know, she's somebody that doesn't they... get brought up, um, very much. And, uh, it's kind of yeah, interesting she's mentioned in John DeCamp's book, but yeah, as we were saying before we started recording, she's not actually mentioned in Nick Bryan's book at all. I guess Alara Smith, we think might just be a uh, pseudonym for someone because this person would have been 15 at the time. And she I notice here of, that, uh, yeah, here on page 18, he puts an asterisk like next to her name, mm-hmm, but so um, it, might be it that, doesn't say yeah. at the bottom of the page, like what the asterisk, um, he doesn't have like a footnote down here that, but I, I have a feeling that because Nick Bryant never uh, brings her up, then mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe he brings her up under a different name. Um, yeah. Well, he says Loretta Isabel Smith. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I'm not sure. It's not a name that you hear pop up, but she actually um, gives some of the very first, um, yeah, in, 19, in June 1988, um, Officer Carmine uh, from the Omaha Police Department, um, who had been investigating this creepy photographer named Rusty Nelson, who was reported um, yeah, by, he's a big I think, a part mother. of this. Uh, he is, yeah. he is. And He's he a big pops link to up, this chain. yeah. And um, he was actually the person that Gary Caradori was going to meet with, I think, in Chicago the weekend that mm-hmm. he, when he flew back, he blew up. So, um, well, yeah, very that's suspicious the concern character. because, yeah, he's very suspicious. And uh, actually, Nick Bryant meets with him, and he said that he had like a spooky and unctuous vibe. Um, but he, you know, did. Uh, ba- what was interesting is that he said, you know, um, so basically, the the speculation is that the reason why his plane blew up. I mean, who knows, how, like, you know, how it blew up or, or what happened, but, uh, you know, and tragically, his young son was also killed in the plane. Uh, but, uh, you know, the idea is that because this guy was like, uh, it seems that he was Larry King's photographer, basically. Yeah. So the idea, like, in meeting with him, maybe he would be able to obtain some pictures. So, yes. uh, yeah. And sometimes is- he claimed that he 
he had his own stash of pictures potentially as kind of blackmail insurance so that Larry right. King couldn't do anything to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since we're starting with, uh, since uh, Rusty Nelson is kind of a way into this, uh, maybe it would uh, be good to, to read um, some of uh, the stuff about, about him. Um, yeah, I'm looking at so, the, the, the police reports right now. Um, yeah. Um, Brian says that uh, I talked to Nelson for 15 minutes, easing his reluctance before I plucked a tape recorder from my backpack. Over the course of the next two hours, he related an improbable tale of Larry King's nationwide network. He alleged the ring pandered or outright sold children to rich and powerful people, employed blackmail, and had ties to U.S., quote, intelligence. He maintained that King had attended satanic rituals and had routinely plundered Boys Town for underage prostitutes. Nelson also named eminent politicians as pedophiles. King hired me to take pictures of adults and children in compromising positions, Nelson told me. The pictures uh, showed who the adults were and who the kids were. I gathered that the purpose was blackmail and it was political. The contents of the pictures and the events surrounding them would be an instant end to a politician's career. Nelson claimed that King attempted to pressure him into making snuff films, causing their relationship to fissure. Uh, so I guess, yeah, it's, okay. uh, that's a uh, second, uh, that's yeah. a corroboration of what we, what we might hear yeah, later. It's, it's interesting that, yeah, he was like, okay, I'll do child porn, but <laughs> yeah, I guess snuff film, I don't know, it's a, it's a bridge too far. Anyway, <laughs> so after Nelson severed his ties to King, he alleged he was harassed by the FBI. Nelson claims the crux of the FBI's threats wasn't designed to force disclosures about King's pedophile ring, but rather to silence him. That's definitely something that's consistent across uh, yeah. a lot of these uh, uh, testimonies. Uh, Nelson's allegations were jarring, but his shifty personalities really detracted from his credibility. After the interview, uh, then he just talks about going to his friend's Dirk's apartment. Uh, there's some more interesting stuff here, but uh, just about, you know, how people were intimidated and uh, the conspiracy of silence documentary and his attempt to get in touch with some of those people there. But anyway, yeah, so that's uh, to this yeah. day, that's what he, he stands by that, uh, you know, he was taking sort of blackmail uh, child porn pictures for him. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and the cops got turned on to this guy because some woman kind of, um, I don't know, she, her, I think she was maybe approached in a mall or something, and he uh, he said he was like a fashion photographer, and he wanted to, uh, you know, uh, take photos of uh, her daughter, and so they went there, but then he wanted to kind of like, they were kind of scantily clad and sus, and then she called up like his references that he gave, like different agencies that had used, and they're like, one of them was like, oh, yeah, that guy, he's fucking, he's a pervert. Like, he's fucking sus. Mm-hmm. So then <clears throat> that woman called the cops. And then the cops started looking into him and kind of dropped its probe of him. But when they interviewed him, he talked about how um, he basically, oh, well, he was he was working out of an apartment owned by yeah. Larry, Larry King. Basically, um, what they ended up saying was, yeah, Nelson would talk about his boss. You know, yeah. like uh, he says uh, in one of these, uh, Officer Carmian, who was involved in this investigation, uh, he reported that uh, Parker stated, uh, Brenda Parker indicated she suspected Nelson to be a homosexual. Parker identified Nelson as being a white male, approximately 25 years old, 9'5", 140 pounds with dishwater blonde hair and a small blonde mustache. He was casually addressed and appeared quite a feminine. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's sick. Feminine. Uh, yeah, during <laughs> uh, their also sick conversation, uh, Parker stated that Nelson said he does work at Max, which is a gay bar located in downtown Omaha, and he further stated that he frequents gay bars. Parker stated that Nelson continually offered various foods and drink to both Parker and her mother. Nelson placed a very large bowl of strawberries on a table, offering them to Brenda and her mother. They were also offered to drink some champagne. During the conversation, Nelson stated that he was self-employed, but made a couple references to, quote, the boss. 
keeping the place well-stocked and that the boss let him stay there rent-free. It is unknown who the boss is. Um, so says, the officer sent yeah. to investigate his digs quickly established that the boss was Larry King. Yeah, and this was um, in this was in a uh, a apartment complex in like downtown Omaha, which has the very interesting name, the Twin Towers. Yeah, so I noticed that. Uh, yeah, where a lot yeah. of these parties, Larry King basically spent like fifty thousand dollars tricking out the penthouse apartment in this place. So I think he let um, Rusty Nelson live in it for a while, and then he uh, allegedly went to um, you know started. Uh, throwing parties like at one point he bought a uh, he bought a really expensive couch um, that wouldn't fit in the elevator so he hired a crane for twelve hundred dollars to have the couch lifted into the apartment um, mm-hmm. very elegantly furnished um, uh, they say he knows that King drives at least five different vehicles three of them Mercedes Benzes one a Cadillac um, and another sports car um, they believe that he owns property in Washington DC he went on to state that King has a habit of throwing names around and is believed he's very influential in the Republican Party um, and yeah. uh, but they yeah. ended up like completely like just throwing that out because they were saying like oh well yeah he owned the apartment this guy lived in but he wasn't uh, you know uh, working for him in any way or anything like that um, yeah, that's uh, like, you know, the whole, believe. yeah, this is what a uh, chief Wadman who later would be kind of implicated. Um, uh-huh. he said, uh, it, we had a situation where we were advised that there was a possibility of child pornography involving, uh, no, it came in as a child por- pornography case. What happened is that there was a photographer who was taking photographs of young women and in the course of that set of circumstances, the mother with her daughter called, that was Parker, who we'd mentioned, and filed a complaint with the police department. And the complaint involved a situation where her daughter was approached by the photographer to be photographed and the photographer extended an invitation to this young woman's mother to come with her. They went to the studio, photographs were taken, and in the course of that, the mother became concerned over the photographs and some of the photographs that she observed at the photo studio and then filed a complaint of concern that this was a possible pornographic situation. We investigated it, found the photographer to be, you know, legitimately involved in the photography business, legitimately involved in conducting the photographs and getting signed releases and having a photography studio and so on. The only involvement that this individual had subleased his studio or apartment from Larry King, and that was the extent of our investigation into pornography-related activities involving Mr. King in any way. Mm, um, yeah, I, mean, I wonder why that is Chief Wadman. Yeah, yeah. And like, we'll get to uh, him. He's so the whole, full of like, shit. Uh, and that it almost comes off that they weren't even saying that Nelson was involved in child pornography, but he definitely was. He's now yeah, like you yeah. know a registered sex offender. Yes, he's um, been in jail for uh, yeah. it and everything. Um, so I mean, and, and so they dropped their probe, of course, uh, back in um, in '88. But then on June 28, 1988, um, Officer Carmine was dispatched to interview a different girl whose terrible story pointed to the same clique. She was 15-year-old Loretta Smith, who lived with her mother and brother in Omaha. At the time Carmine talked to her, Loretta was hospitalized at Richard Young Hospital, where she had told a therapist in the words of Carmine's report about, quote, incidents in which she has been photographed nude or partially nude, as well as instances of devil worship. Carmine wrote that Loretta was, quote, rather articulate for a 15-year-old and spoke and acted rather maturely for her years. So here's an excerpt from the police report. Smith initiated the conversation by indicating that approximately five or six years ago when she was nine years old, um, she went to a party with some friends much older than her. There, she met a white male who coaxed her into modeling for him. He offered to take Smith home if Smith would pose for some pictures. Initially, the unidentified white male took photographs of her with a Polaroid camera of her fully clothed, although finally she agreed to pose for one completely nude photograph taken by this white male. 
Smith then spoke of occasions when she went to the North Omaha Girls Club on Lake Street with friends of hers whom she identified as Nellie and Kimberly Webb. There, she discovered they were also, quote, modeling. Smith stated that those field trips consisted of the girls being taken to a photographic studio where pictures are taken of them either nude or partially clad. Smith also stated that she has not spoken to or knows the whereabouts of either Nellie or Kimberly Webb, not having seen them for approximately three years. She stated that a number of adults, whom she referred to as leaders from the North Omaha Girls Club, both male and female, were engaged in the photography of nude children. She also indicated that a number of prominent individuals were involved, including doctors and lawyers, although she indicated they used code names and that she could provide no real names for these individuals. Smith also indicated that the adult leaders who took these photographs used threats against her and others to get them to participate in these photographic sessions. She stated that she had been told on occasion that her entire family would be killed as well as her if she refused to participate in these activities. And she goes on to say... Uh, you probably she told, should have given like a content warning for like. I know. Thing, I just like, thought about that. Yeah, I almost stopped uh, myself. Well, uh, let's just yeah, think of. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, gonna it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse. So I yeah. think we'll we'll try not to um, read like the most hor- horrific shit that um that yeah. uh, you know try to do it in a way and uh, and definitely you know I think even some of these allegations as extreme as they sound um, I think in retrospect just to say in a brief side note I felt. Um, a little bad about, you know, the excerpt we read of Kathy O'Brien a couple weeks ago, just because, like, I think the context of, like, laughing at that had more to do with uh, our feud over it years ago. And I think kind of the ostentatiousness of that being, like, the first anecdote that you would find to support the theory of, like, Project Monarch is Mm -hmm. an admittedly very... um, it's you know well yeah it's a tough pill to swallow because i think that's what happened where i was like look up kathy uh, o'brien and you found that passage and we're like really dude and uh, um, (laughs) like you have to believe her i well i think if people are uh well i'm not saying like you know that that didn't happen or anything uh you know or yeah or or anything like that in terms of the kathy o'brien stuff like again who who's to say i think that well, there's two elements of it, which I mean, uh, well, definitely certainly a feature of me that uh, is in addition to having horrible vocal fry and saying like, you know, all the time, uh, which makes me maybe not uh, the ideal person to have a podcast is that uh, as I'm doing right now, I have like a general habit of just like nervous laughter and like laughing when I speak, especially when talking about something that, uh, you know, laughter can be like a response to something that's like, in fact, horrific. And I think yes. another aspect of the Kathy O'Brien stuff is that, um, you know, uh, there's like a, a very stark juxtaposition between the sort of uh, horrific uh, acts that are being carried out and the sort of public persona of these political figures. Uh, exactly. Creates, exactly. Know? So there's sort of like, a, yeah, but that's not uh, to, uh, you know, if that, that have like, you know, if I, I have like a sort of almost involuntary express like a, of that type of thing uh, when reading some of this material, it's almost like a reaction of discomfort. More so yes. than like uh, yes. laughing at the a suggestion or uh, the aspersions. Like I think that that's something. I mean, people like laugh at funerals, you know. Like uh, and in particular, like that, you know. Uh, there's there's sort of a, a recipes uh, for that. Um, for sure, you know, for in, sure. In some so, of this, in some of this uh, stuff, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, so so I think that that's a good just a like note to slide in there, as well as like a general content warning that like this is going to get. Uh, this is this is yeah. a dark story. And, and I believe 
I definitely believe a lot more of it than I don't. You know what I mean? Like mm. uh, in terms of yeah. some of these allegations, even though they do get quite extreme. Um, and um, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're not. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely like our general. uh you know, position is that like, there's definitely something like to this, like people can make their individual evaluation about like the reality of each in like, you know, particular thing that's alleged. Uh, the, I don't know, like if people have listened to that entire Q and a episode, uh, you know, where we talked talked about the story of, uh, involving George W, uh, George H W Bush and Cheney, um, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, engage in, uh, acts, uh, that, you know, are kind of, uh, on a similar level to some of the other ones we'll talk about here, but, um, well, and it's relevant because I think, um, I just to impress that like, yeah, we like, at least I personally, like, I don't find, um, in a very literal sense, I don't find those allegations about George HW Bush, like laughable on their face. And I think yeah, at, at, the of, at the end of the side of, of saying, like, even though, like, you know, people can look that up and make their evaluation for themselves. But I would certainly err on the side of, like, you know, saying that they're true rather than saying that they're false, because, like, you know, uh, H.W. Bush is guilty of all sorts of horrible crimes. So, like, yes. you know, we, uh, we already know that he's wearing a mask. Like he uh, is yeah. a different type of person underneath than the one the the image he presented to the public, and I think by the end of this episode, I think maybe uh, people will have a little more evidence to go off of why we're so uh, we we so repeatedly uh, evoke George H W Bush as like the the hidden shaitan of like the um, late twentieth century American yes. politics. Yeah, um, and another relevant sort of one to this is like uh, that sort of has that. Uh, same kind of uh juxtaposition uh to it is the uh, hunter s thompson uh you know eating a baby but that's like also kind of a straw man uh in sort of our shorthand of talking about it when really the accusation was that he filmed the eating of a baby um and uh that was again uh sort of mired in a bunch of other stuff rusty nelson does kind of stand by uh it's interesting because yeah, it's unclear whether that was a pseudonym given, but uh, Rusty Nelson, for what it's worth, does uh, in Nick Bryan's book indicate that actually uh, Hunter S. Thompson was into doing snuff films. Uh, but uh, yeah. we'll get to that uh, down the line. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it does come the, up into Camp's book as well, because uh, that that was originally brought up by Paul Benassi. Um, yes. In, in his allegations. But yeah. So, and I mean, yes. I. I think and a but, lot of the stuff, yeah, is so, yeah, sorry, uh, just to, like, continue, like, to talk, as we talk, talk about the Loretta stuff, like, uh, it's gonna get, you know, as we continue to read this, it's gonna get pretty bad, and there's, like, uh, it's almost, like, surreal, you know, yeah. it, uh, yeah. and the, it's a characteristic that a lot of this stuff has, where, uh, because this is really part of that larger cultural wave, where, you know, we're talking about people describing, and again, this is, like, all very, like, horrible, and, like, very grim, and, like, we're doing this podcast like week to week and we're dealing with these like, you know, in a way like we've become desensitized to it. Like, uh, and if we like sometimes like chuckle or something like that, it's like, you know, uh, something that helps us to stay sane because yeah. like this is like the darkest like part of humanity, you know, but there, there's this sort of surreal aspect to it where, you know, uh, like when children would say like, Oh, you know, Ronald McDonald did this or I saw a giraffe like being killed. Let's say like, like a mutilated giraffe. Like there is this kind of like, uh, circus-like kind of, like, surreal aspect to it that's almost like, uh, I mean, we talked about this before, like, the sort of clownishness or the mockery is kind of built into it, but, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is just kind of, like, talking off the cuff, but I think that that is a, uh, something that, that happens when there's, like, uh, you know, something just so shocking 
yeah, sometimes, yeah. like, you know, a sudden decapitation or whatever. Sure. Like, that's, like, seen in Hereditary, you know, uh-huh. a great movie, For where, sure. like, uh, you know, uh, well, I won't give it away, but, like, if something horrible happens shockingly, you know, uh, that is a very don't know what I mean. Scene. Yeah. But a lot of people will involuntarily let out, you know, kind of a chuckle when they, when they, uh, you know, uh, encounter kind something of shocked shocking laughter and, and things yeah, like exactly that. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, uh, so I think, I think yeah. in a way, yeah, it kind of, I think it gets to a thing that I think we are trying to do here, which is like sort of resist the urge to like, um, like the, I don't know, you could almost call it like the, the laughter of exit from being able to take these things like seriously and like hold them in your brain and not have such like not have them be so epistemologically threatening to like your worldview that you kind of have to laugh at it or mm-hmm. in some sense like not take it seriously or on the other hand get so kind of black pilled and uh, overwhelmed by like the evil of this that you're just like uh, it almost paralyzes you in a way um mm-hmm. which i feel like sometimes the satanic panic stuff it's like it would have that kind of binary reaction maybe like more uh, religious or evangelical people or people that cared more about the welfare of children really deeply um, were almost kind of just like shocked into almost their own kind of like dissociative state broadly defined of like not even being able to uh, critically not even wanting to be able to stomach like to critically engage with like politics anymore because this is so gross and like I definitely went through probably periods of that when I was like digging into Franklin like over the years there's definitely a period where it's like it was the furthest thing even like nervous laughter about it was kind of like it was really disturbing um Mm -hmm. to consider that these things were real and there was like evidence backing it up but that the media was just like never going to it was it was a successful cover-up like of you know a uh, really nasty conspiracy but i think yeah i think as we read um a little deeper into like what these allegations were um maybe that's that's just the the yeah definitely, we'll try to inhabit a, a yeah and definitely we're not yeah like trying to like uh you know because uh, yeah i mean i think that uh a point that you're making is that uh like in the wikipedia article there's certainly like a uh, some people who would like laugh off uh the idea of this stuff um which is like certainly not like yeah. our position at all we're not like saying that this is like you know to be ridiculed or is ridiculous uh and should like not be taken seriously or like believed or, or something like that you know like uh or like you know like uh the way people like mock like alien abductees or something like that being like yeah like, yeah this is know, a bit different category thing. because we we yeah. sort of know that it is like it it is there there's a realness to it of you know this is just human behavior this doesn't involve any uh almaos or ufos or you know um even the satanic stuff which we'll get to is definitely in that liminal strange world that we've talked about with Aquino and other people yeah. that well, have I engaged yeah, in black like, uh, magic where it's not like people aren't necessarily saying that oh I saw people like fly and like shoot electricity it's like it, it, these are like rituals for power and like sacrificing people yeah uh, or even you know if someone like has like these experiences like you know I think that it's important to like take them seriously and like you know it's the whole idea that like you know, this is, like, insanity or stupidity of some kind, like, that's not, like, you know, uh, 
like something that like we're interested in passing judgment on as pe- people as being like insane or, or stupid like really i think uh, yes and you know, the, in, the, in any respect and um, the the like every aspect of the u.s government the judicial system has already seen to it that everyone would see this as ridiculous and not take it seriously so mm-hmm. uh, i think yeah. we're we're pushing back on that a little bit and, yeah so uh, content warning for something that might be like disturbing if like uh you know this is the kind of material that disturbs you and also uh content warning you know for something that is you know very much in that kind of vein of uh being extreme uh kind of on the on the the outlandish side uh as these things go i received a phone call on the floor of the legislature the caller did not identify himself but he said lauren you do not want to have an investigation of the franklin federal credit union and i asked who I was speaking to, and they said, that doesn't matter, but you shouldn't have that investigation. And I said, well, why not? He said, it will reach to the highest levels of the Republican Party, and we're both good Republicans. The night before we testified before the uh, legislative committee, I did receive a phone call at home that said, if you speak, you won't live to regret it. Uh, with that, I think I'll, I'll get to the the heavier stuff here that Loretta Smith told Officer Carmine. She said that, quote, she began participating in what she termed devil worship with other juveniles and adults. She stated that she was approximately 11 or uh, 12 or 11 years old when she started attending these rituals, which sometimes included nude photography. Those participating, quote, were given something to drink, which she stated tasted like apple juice, which, which she thought contained some kind of drug. Smith indicated that Nellie and Kimberly Webb had also reported these activities to police in the past and that nothing had been done. She stated that the Webb girls had told the superintendent of Fort Calhoun schools, whom she identified as a Mr. Finch, and stated that it had been reported to him first, but girls felt since nothing was done that he must have been involved also. Uh, In a report dated June 30th, 1988, Carmine put down more of what he learned from Loretta. During the course of reporting officer's interview with Loretta Isabel Smith concerning child pornography activity, as well as devil worship, she mentioned the name of Larry King as being a participant and supporter of these activities. Asked how she knew this, Smith stated that she is a friend of the daughter of Gary West. West is reportedly the manager for Max's, a predominantly homosexual bar located uh, uh, south of Central Station at 1415 Jackson Street. Smith stated that she has been to the West residence several times and that Gary West is a homosexual as well as an alcoholic. She stated that when he does become intoxicated, he talks about his certain activities with Larry King and indicated that he is into the use of controlled substances, i.e. cocaine, for personal use as well as for sale and that he owes Larry King a lot of money for this. With regard to Larry King. She stated that she knows that he supports devil worship activities. She further indicated that King owns a house on Wirt Street, the exact location of which she did not know, but that King holds various uh, sex and drug parties there. Um, And, uh... Yeah, it gets, uh, in her testimony, um, in 1988, uh, well, while she was saying this, it's important to note she was in, like, a psychiatric, uh, hospital. Yes. And this is uh, uh, actually a report for the legislature's uh, Franklin Committee mm-hmm. um, by Jerry Lowe. Um, and it talks about, you know, her, what she said to hospital staff uh, mm-hmm. in 1988. And this is uh, something uh, that is uh, intense. Yeah. Okay. So uh, August 19th, 1988. 
The hospital notes indicated that Loretta was asked to give a chronological account of involvement in what is described as a devil worship cult, and that Loretta agreed to do this. Loretta indicated that she didn't really know what was happening and that she became involved very gradually. And this is something that is sort of corroborated. The, what, the process she describes of getting involved, I think as we'll see, we'll probably juxtapose this or compare it with some of uh, what the other uh, more prominent uh, victims uh, said. Yeah. And you'll see how this kind of lines up. Um, mm-hmm. She indicated that when she was approximately nine years old, she was going to the girls club in Omaha and that a guy named Ray would take her and four or five other girls at the girls club on outings. He took them to a building that, according to Loretta, looked abandoned and asked the girls if they wanted to go in, which they all agreed to do. Loretta indicated they sat and talked for a while, and then Ray provided a joint, and all the individuals got high. She indicated this activity continued uh, for about three or four weeks, and then Ray took them to a party. Loretta indicated that at the party, there were about ten men, all in their mid-thirties, and that initially they sat around and talked with the girls about their problems. Loretta indicated that all the people got wasted and that the men at the party made them sleep around that the girls did not have a choice of who they slept with. So, you know, this begins to really escalate. So uh, then in order to get out of the house, she did begin going to the parties again, and they lasted for another six months. So she stayed away uh, for a few days. Then she started to go again. Um, in one occasion, she threatened to tell her mother that the men were having sex with her and that, she, uh, and that they knew she was only nine, but the men indicated that they would kill anyone who told about the activities. The men started taking the girls to what the men described as power meetings. So I feel like this is uh, an mm-hmm. important thing. Yeah. Loretta advised she was uh, 10 years old. She indicated that candles and other weird stuff were at the power meetings. According to Loretta, one of the individuals on one occasion told the girls the room was going to spin for a while, and it did, and she realized later that it was drugs the men had given them. Mm-hmm. Loretta advised that about 10 months later, she was put through her first test. This is horrible. Okay. Mm-hmm. Her and yeah. the other girls were taken to a building in Omaha where she was locked in a room with a little girl which she described as a Caucasian infant. At about midnight, Loretta indicated the men came into the room, took the little girl away from her, and told her that she could achieve power by killing something that she really loved. Loretta described that they then cut the little girl's head off, stuck it on the wall, and made her sit in front of it. Loretta indicated later that she had to take the head off the wall and that the men held her down when they cut the eyes out of the little girl's head. Then they left Loretta and the girl in the room locking the door. She was left in the locker room with the little girl for 24 hours, and during this time, she could hear one of the other girls screaming. Shortly after this, the men came into the room and told Loretta she had passed the test and drove her a couple blocks from her house and let her out. So, yeah, and it goes on to say that, yeah, um, she, uh, um, like, there was a child that was fried and eaten by girls, you know, as part of another test. uh, And, yes, there was some consumption of children and things like that um yeah and yeah, uh they said yeah, she, at additional meetings uh loretta indicated the men told her and the other girls that they must sacrifice for power and described three incidents where further sacrifices took place um and so uh, yes and she says uh she makes a point that uh the clothes they were wearing had upside down crosses on them and the leader always wore a long black cape with gold rings shaped like a skeleton head um, oh yeah. Yes. Just, uh, just a cool well, yeah. symbol. Yeah. Just a, well. It's, uh, obviously, he was. He believed in unknownism. Uh, anyway. So uh, like that. I mean, the, the, that's even worse than kind of the Aquino uh, stuff. I think. Um. In a way. Um, uh, well, yes. I mean, the Aquino. They weren't. The, the one thing that is interesting about this, from like a satanic 
panic perspective is that mo- unlike a lot of things like McMartin or the Presidio scandal or the West Point scandal and other things like that, is that most of the kids who were alleging abuse in this case were like teenagers. So it, mm-hmm. in a way, it's much more like Den or Epstein in that these were not like tiny, tiny children. So when they're giving their testimony, these are like 15, 16, sometimes it's a few years later, like 19, 20-year-olds. And they're generally able to uh, articulate a much more clear narrative. And it's interesting how similar it is in a lot of ways to the very little kids that testified in, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of those other trials and how they were totally discredited because it's like, oh, it's probably just their imagination or whatever. But I I don't like how the type of stuff that Loretta Smith is saying. Yeah. Animals being mutilated, uh, uh you know, that comes. Yeah. So drinking blood, like even the the idea that was explored on the Geraldo special, um, which did have some Franklin scandal adjacent people on it but did not go into the franklin scandal which is kind of interesting um maybe actually no that special was in like 88 so it hadn't really like broken out in a big way yet but um the the guy that said that you know he committed murder a ritual murder to get ten thousand souls in hell even Mm -hmm. that um totally lines up with like these people ordering these kids that they have to kill for power they have to sacrifice something that you love like to get power from the devil and stuff yes. so even the the kind of cult activities there is a consistency yeah we've talked about and this is again like a very like old idea that like yeah you can take life to gain power like again this is like what we talked about this again like in the q a episode uh mm-hmm. where the, uh, the whole idea of adrenochrome which you know is inter- it's interesting the Hunter Thompson connection to some of the stuff because like it you really know is, uh, whether it? you believe it actually was like, Hunter where, Thompson. Where did he? Where did this meme come? Like, did he hear about this from somewhere? I mean, yeah. yeah what was it inspired right. by? Whether you actually believe that it was Hunter Thompson, it is interesting that you know that person would you know they were apparently according to Paul Bonacci, but we'll talk about Paul Bonacci later because I like. But anyway, like uh, he you know he was picked up in Las Vegas. Uh, and, yeah. But uh, so yeah, uh, I don't know, but. Yeah, like and you uh, know, yeah, Hunter Thompson also. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but uh, he lived literally lived next door in Aspen, Colorado, to Bandar Bush. Uh huh. Well, yeah, Bandar yeah, Bush idea, moved. They shared a property line. But um, basically, yeah, this idea of uh, you know sacrifices to gain power, like uh, you know, is kind of what the adrenochrome thing is like, uh, almost like a rationalization of, as we were kind yes. of uh, proposing. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I when it, that, when it seems other, like the, yeah. this is really about like, no, it's about like killing somebody that you love. Like it's about kind of a um, psychological transformation, perhaps. Yeah. And maybe doing it in a group ritualized setting, um, you know, and, and this is, yeah. Another interesting thing that uh, about the Loretta Smith uh, account is that, you know, as you often say, like, or, you know, as you often point out uh, with reference to the sort of uh, stories by uh, younger kids, um, you know, she, uh, was at least in retrospect able to like realize that she had been drugged. Um, yes, and, well, exactly. You know, exactly. So she didn't like, say, she said the room started to spin, but she was old enough to say that, you know, uh, it, they weren't doing yeah, magic at on least her later on. She was able to realize that like, you know, and who like, you know, that could have also, uh, affected the nature of some of her other, like, you know, uh, the rest of like what she experienced in some way, you know, like, uh, I am not to say that like some of that stuff like maybe didn't uh, like happen literally as she described it, but 
it it is interesting to 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 kind of consider as a possibility that just how we talked in um the aquino episode about how if you took a bunch of um hypothetically if you took a bunch of three or four year olds and gave them lsd and then did stage magic in front of them that i'd say there's a decently high chance that they would believe that they had just seen magic if you um, gave like a nine-year-old like a bo- like a bowl of peeled grapes, gave them LSD, and told them that it was eyeballs, like they would believe it. If you like, you know, uh, yeah. If you did like some weird like stunt, like if you, you took really, a, you know, a, a a realistic doll or something, yeah. And then, uh, not to say that like you know uh, like what she described, like you know necessarily like you know it's possible that it did happen, but like in terms of like totally. you know, frying people, eating them, drink, you know, like what she was told versus what was real but again like you know what's really the difference like uh practically speaking between that's those extreme like, even if you were it's, do, it's, it's almost yeah, as bad uh, because you're depraved, psychologically no yeah. yeah you're traumatizing this person and terrifying mm-hmm. them um and uh just you know uh, so the, the first reaction to that it bears mentioning um this is when um when foster care review board executive director carol stitt um received the reports from loretta's caseworkers uh, she believed that the girl's testimony appeared highly credible and Stitt explained before the state legislature's executive board in December 19, 1988, quote, one of the things that you want to keep in mind, as horrifying as this is when you review it, this girl is very concrete about who was present at these homicides, what was happening, dates. She gave a lot of specific information. And in working with children, one of the ways you know that this is not a global fantasy is the more details they give you. Um, and DeCamp says the information given to hospital staff and to the Omaha police by Loretta Smith overlapped and corroborated what was already in the hands of authorities from the children uh, from the Webb household and from Margot Georgiou and her daughter. That's the mother that went to um, Rusty Nelson. And those from those three separate cases involving pornography, child abuse, and ritual murder, um, the children's testimony and other evidence started to converge on Larry King. Yeah, and, and, and it was around. Yeah, I think that there actually might have been like some false memory foundation involvement in the stuff later on. Uh, that like, wouldn't I surprise think that me Nick at all. Brian uh, pointed this out. And that's another thing about like the false memories. Like a lot of the time, like you know, the whole like the whole thing with like the confabulated false memories is. Uh, oh yeah, uh, in Todd Rivers' case, I guess um, who. Uh, was a uh, litigant. The Boys Town Report published an absolute falsehood concerning Todd Rivers, who was one of the litigants. They reported that Rivers had claimed recovered memories of his molestation by Boys Town's father, James Kelly, in March of 2002, and he gave an interview to the World Herald about his molestation before February 23rd, 2002. Before, therefore, he wasn't being truthful, but Todd Rivers actually commented on his abuse in a World Herald article from February uh, 23rd. 2003, almost a year after he recovered memories of being molested. The fact that Boys Town published an outright falsehood to deconstruct Rivers' credibility is very disturbing. So yeah, that's another thing, like this uh, magazine, like the, you know, the World Herald. Uh, oh, the Omaha Herald, World Herald yeah. is so... Yeah, they were they, 100% like on board with suppressing this, and they just and, smeared them like and, and, and were... Basically, yeah, it, like, it appears uh, that the yeah. reason that was is because literally like the... Um, like many of the people that owned and ran the Omaha world Herald were literally the people that were being, uh, uh, accused by these kids right. as being yeah. part of this abuse ring, including, a Harold Anderson, who I think was like one of the owners of it. And then Peter Citron, who is like the celebrity columnist. Um, mm-hmm. they basically, 
played like an incredibly malicious role in stomping all over this case and the inquiries around it from the very beginning. And, uh, um, you know, yeah, o- Omaha, but, uh, yeah. the way it's described is like that, like these Midwestern states that don't have huge populations, but maybe have, you know, certain industries and stuff like the, the, the sort of local bourgeoisie kind of really does run everything according to their own, you know, wants and needs. Um, you know, like the, you see such an overlap of like the prominent Omaha citizens that keep getting accused and all these things. It's like, you know, they're all in tight with like the police chief and they uh, are on the board of Boys Town and yeah. they're on the board of the Omaha World Herald. And, you know, like uh, yeah. the FBI agent is, uh, the, the, the FBI chief of Omaha is best right. friends with the police chief who's being accused and, you um, I remember reading something that was like, you know, oh, yeah, like it's we're uh, should presume like innocent until like, you know, prove, but like uh, they're like, well, they're not technically defendants in anything yet, you know, so like we don't have to take their side. Like uh, they like did some kind of thing was like to justify like how ridiculous they were being in, uh, you know, just really trying to smear these people like right away. Like they were just yeah. like, we need to destroy anyone who came forward with this. But uh, this is not even the world herald per se like uh the boys town the the co- report commissioned by boys town to investigate the abuse allegations uh actually had to distort what the already very biased world herald reported to uh you know make this uh, uh attack on him uh and uh, Brian goes on uh just to you know uh, tie this into the false memory thing mm-hmm. um the fact that Boytown published uh, an outright falsehood to deconstruct his credibility is very disturbing. It's also disturbing the Boystown report cleared Father James Kelly of molesting Boystown youth because I've talked to four former students who claim Kelly was their abuser and his history suggests that of a serial predator. In Todd Rivers' case, Boystown constructed a psychiatrist who sat on the advisory board of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation oh. to debunk Rivers' repressed memories. Uh, FMSF has a macabre genius and some of its advisory board members have a prior affiliation with CIA mind control experimentation. That's true. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, uh, but another thing is that, you know, I guess in this case he did sort of recover memories, but a lot of the time, like, uh, when people are accused of having like these made up confabulated memories, they don't even like have a period where like they ha- they don't remember them. They just remember them all the way through, like from when they happen to like when they're telling about them. And then to say like, oh, well, that is just like a false memory that you confabulated. Like it's just not even it's like totally getting away from even what the whole idea of this false memory thing was supposed to Wait, be. So they, break it, like, break that down again, uh, the distinction well, between that. So it, it's like not a, a memory. The time, they like totally the, forgot. I feel like the idea but... was introduced went by the idea that through therapy or through hypnosis or something like that, yeah. you would come to uh, remember something that had happened uh, that you had forgotten or repressed. Uh, yeah. And then in that suggestible state of hypnosis or through like the leading of a therapist or something like that, then you could like, you remember things that hadn't actually happened. Yeah. Uh, so that's like the idea of false memory, like, you know, and you could pick that apart on its own, but then like somehow that idea, which seems a little bit more acceptable has been used to insinuate the idea that like memories that, you know, people just straight up remember are false too. You oh, know, okay. Just okay. As so long not as, something, not something recovered via hypnosis. Yeah. Uh, in this case, yeah. in Todd Rivers case, like, you know, he did like re- remember them, uh, like, you know, he had forgotten them. They re- were repressed. But yeah. a lot of the time, like, there's no recovery that even happens, like, or is necessary. You know, people would just be like, yeah, like, on this day, 
this happens and like I've never forgotten it and like in fact uh-huh. like it's burned into my memory uh, yeah. and they'll be like oh that's a false memory which is like is they've departed from like the whole narrative they use the whole sort of more acceptable narrative they use to get the idea of false memories accepted unscrupulous psychiatrists and social workers were implanting these things now it's just like if you remember it it could still be false yeah i I have to say yeah the false memory syndrome foundation is one of the sussest and most like evil (laughs) i think um groups Uh, no what are you talking about what about uh lucian greaves you know oh yeah yeah free rights uh and you know uh have you read the Satanic Principles? <laughs> uh, the head of the, it is anyway, true that the yeah. head of the Satanic Temple, I think, when he was at Harvard, did work for the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. He just seems so passionate about you know debunking these um, religious uh, false memories about Satanic abuse and uh, yeah, what an important cause to dedicate your life to, making sure yeah. you know that and like. <clears throat> and yeah, it, you know, it is worth anyway. noting not only did the people in that have um, you know CIA like MK Ultra kind of ties, but um, the foundation itself was originally created by Pamela and Peter Freyd, um, whose daughter, who's actually now I think a psychology professor at the University of Oregon, who like specializes in like childhood abuse and and things like that. She actually accused her father of sexual abuse, uh, and as a result, he and his wife like i guess you know claim that she was wrong and that a therapist had brainwashed her and so mm-hmm. then they founded the fmsf and wow um, yeah, yeah like so they well, founded I've, it in- I've heard that story many times where basically yeah it's like just like abusers who will just be like oh you know yeah uh, no not true like false memory it's just yeah like and they were brought in as experts like starting in um and this this all happened in 1990 so in a way like um, this kind of like turned the tide and sort of the war over like the satanic panic, I think in the culture in like 1990, 91, um, in the early 90s, like they started like generously offering their services to testify as experts in various abuse trials. And basically we're always on the side of like, it's a fake memory, abuse didn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like 100% of the time. And, um, you know, eventually, people uh you know a lot of uh like said like big shots in the scientific world kind of joined their board they claimed to have 2000 members in 1993 one interesting guy uh with the um i don't know very novelistic name Ralph Underwager um was a member of uh the foundation's scientific advisory board um in 1993 uh, when his comments from a 1991 article in Paidika, the Journal of Pedophilia, came to public awareness. The article contained statements which were interpreted as supportive of pedophilia. In the controversy that followed, Underwager resigned from the FMSF Scientific Advisory Board. Underwager later stated that the quotations in the Paidika article were taken out of context, used to discredit his ability to testify in courts, and through guilt by association, damaged the reputation of the FMSF. So yeah, he was he wrote something, um, I forget. Oh, okay, yeah, and this is a little thing. In the Sunday Times in London, um, child abuse expert says pedophilia, quote, part of God's will. <laughs> okay. So he just misinterpreted. He just he was misinterpreted. Okay. So yeah, these people are were like kind of like scum of the earth and definitely did uh, the devil's work. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
ew, even Carl Sagan cited material from the 1995 issue of the FMS newsletter and his critique of the recovered memory claims of UFO abductees and those purporting to be victims of satanic ritual abuse in his book, The Demon Haunted World, Science is a Candle in the Dark. Ooh, Carl yeah, Sagan. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, like, there's... Down. I was going to say that, like, uh, you know, he's uh, often held up as being, like, you know, uh, like, loving science. But actually, I saw him referenced uh, as Carl Sagan with a K in that uh, book that we uh, were reading for, uh, I think, the Alwara, uh, uh, the last Alwara um, on uh, Soviet parapsychology um, in... uh, in one of those books, uh, yeah, and he was, like, sort of, uh, uh, someone who was, like, uh, floating ancient aliens or something. Car- mm-hmm. Maybe we should do an episode on, like, how sus Carl Sagan is, because I feel oh, yeah, like yeah. he, like, really flies under the radar and is someone who, like, people just, like, worship, uh, and, like, get he all is their daddy to so from. many people. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, uh, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, and he smokes think- weed, he believes in science, like, he wants more <laughs> Yeah, uh, he wears cool sweaters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's from Just the seventies, Mr. Smarka. I mean, yeah, yeah well, I, I it's used like to... he believes in science, but he makes it like kind of mystical, you know. So it's he like... does. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess so. anyway, um, uh, and you know, Neil deGrasse is like you know, he's, carrying he on his tells legacy. a story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me tell you a story about yeah a dodecahedron. Um, yeah, something like that. Um, very uh, Ted, not, very proto British, Ted talk. You did a very, uh, oh, well, that was, that was, I was just doing Idris Shah again. The FBI's attitude was, you know, just no, that this, these kind of things don't happen. And from the first interview when I went, you know, and realized they don't believe a fucking thing I'm saying, you know, I mean, they are, I mean, they, they were just appalled, but I realized what that, that look in their eye was back then. It was fear. It was fear of every, you know. I mean, I had witnessed, you know, firsthand things that would, you know, destroy this city. You know, people, a position, you know what I mean? It's not going to be believed, believed, they said. It will not be believed. You will be found guilty of perjury. And you, I mean, they weren't telling me maybe. You know, they were saying, uh-uh, it's, you're not, it, there's no way. You're going, you go on with this story, you're going to jail. I mean, that was said to me direct. Just out of fear, I came to recant the story out of fear. I've heard that people said that Gary Caradori coached me and uh, that he told me what to say, but the fact was I didn't meet Gary Caradori until way after I'd already talked to the Omaha police about the abuse and had named all the same people. And they didn't ask me very much about Larry King or, Al- or even uh, Alan Bear at all. They treated the allegations that I made about the, about the people who abused me almost like a joke. So, right, yeah, but anyway, okay, this so. false memory stuff, like, yeah, and this, I even saw, like, on Wikipedia, like, uh, one of the, you know, of course, I looked at, like, what the sources were for, like, all this stuff, where they're, like, it was the biggest hoax of all time, or whatever, and one of them was, like, some book called, like, you know, The Changing Views of the Child Molester in American Society, at least that was the subtitle, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it just kind of sandwiched all this stuff in between a bunch of stuff about, like, mcmartin and and false memories so it's interesting how like this which is you know really it, like so enmeshed in all this different stuff like you know say what you will about mcmartin but it was really you know down the line like you know there was just this uh i mean maybe some people allege there was some kind of ring involved but there's like so many tentacles to all of this where there's like very like well documented fi- like and prosecuted financial crime and mm-hmm. like embezzlement fraud you know, and there's all these links to, like, uh, smuggling and things like that and, like, to the larger, like, 
you know, the Iran-Contra sort of picture to the Bush administration, like, uh, in sort mm-hmm. of a setup similar to the one we described uh, in previous Contra episodes uh, in MENA and other, uh, in other Midwestern city. Um, and yet, like, somehow, like, everything about this can be written off uh, through the sort of, like, oh, the false memories, it's, it's a satanic panic, you know, where that's, like, you know, uh, an aspect of it, but there's also, like, you know, much more even to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean this thing do we want to get to the the core of like the main kids yeah we, we read this stuff about loretta to smith get to like alicia owen and talk about what uh she described it is like sort of of a different character it's not at least in john DeCamp's book um what she sort of described she definitely does describe an occult and satanic element it's not mm-hmm. as uh extreme uh and i I don't know if she alleges, at least in this testimony that uh, was, you know, that she gave to Gary uh, Caridori. I'm not sure if she like straight up uh, says anything about murder, but this is what she uh, says. Uh, She's talking about um, uh, Troy uh, Bonner. So, um, or well, actually it might be better to start here. Sorry. Um, So after pursuing many leads on October 30th, 1989, this writer contacted Alicia Owens at the Women's Reformatory in uh, York, Nebraska. So she was in jail at the time for, like, credit fraud. Bad um, check. Or something. Passing yeah. a bad check. Bad check, yeah, right. Um, so I spoke with Alicia for approximately, and that was used to discredit her, of course. You know, it's like, yeah. she's a felon, like, you know. Scumbag. Yeah. yeah, they definitely, I mean, there's a lot of, like, slut-shaming, a lot it's of, not, you like, know, relevant, a bad kid. like, if she passed a bad check. Again, we'll get to Paul Bonacci. That, I'm a little bit like, okay. But anyway, so I spoke with Alicia for approximately three hours, during which time she indicated she had been heavily involved in pornographic and sexual activity with various individuals in Omaha, including former personnel of the Franklin Credit Union. During this discussion with Ms. Owen, she initially indicated that homosexual activities also occurred involving Alan Baer, Harold Anderson, uh, sick, and Robert Wadman, who we mentioned before, you know, the police chief. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, who was like, uh, nothing to it. Uh, uh, so it should be noted that Miss Owens remitted this information without being directly questioned about these specific individuals following as the information gained from Alicia during the videotape statement. During the course of the statement, Alicia stated that she first became involved with Larry King in August of 1983. Alicia was 14 years old at the time. She indicated that she met Larry King through some boys from Boys Town, among them Mark Powers, uh, which is asterisk. So that might also be a pseudonym. Mark Mm -hmm. uh, had invited her to a party uh, that next Friday night. This first party, again, this is exactly very similar to what Loretta described. Um, This first party was held in August of 1983 at a Twin Towers penthouse. Alicia arrived with Troy Boner and Mark Powers at approximately 10 p.m. in a car that Troy was driving. Present when they arrived at the party were Larry King, Bob Wadman, Alan Baer, Harold Anderson, and other adults that Alicia didn't identify this time. Alicia estimated there were approximately six adults and 20 minors. Mark Powers had told Alicia prior to going to the party that there would be marijuana, alcohol, and so much cocaine available at this party that she would think it's snowing. Mm. Alicia stated that the party was held at Alfie Allen's apartment in this building. There was a, quote, professionally made pornographic tape portraying two males, approximately age 17, engaging in homosexual acts. Alicia observed Larry King and Larry, last name unknown, uh, black youth going into one of the bedrooms. She observed later when the black youth emerged from the bedroom that he was tucking in his shirt and fastening his pants. Alicia also observed Alfie Allen going in and out of the bedroom numerous times. She observed a young boy, approximately 14 years old, sitting on Harold Anderson's lap. She 
then observed this boy and Harold Anderson going into one of the bedrooms. Alicia observed Alan Bear using two lines of cocaine and smoking marijuana. A young boy was sitting on Harold Anderson's lap with his pants undone. He was stroking the child's penis. The name of the child is unknown. Um, so, uh, yeah, she goes on, uh, with, uh, this, uh, sort of, uh, vein. There's, uh, uh, lots of things about Robert Wadman. Uh, she was made to have sex with him. Uh, you know, basically he raped her, like he forced, uh, her to mm-hmm. have sex with him, uh, in a, a pretty violent way. Um, uh, it says that, um, you know, she was afraid that he would rape her. So, uh, you know, she, uh, you know, let him kind of masturbate on her. Then uh, she recoiled, which made him very angry. Um, and so, yeah, during all these parties, there were lots of, you know, these uh, things. Anyway, so mm-hmm. she described Rusty Nelson as someone who was present, taking photographs there. Um, she said that Alan Bear cruised the market looking for people um, to, you know, pick up for, for these type of things. Um, and, uh, yeah, um Wadman told her that Larry King owes him a lot and uh, that he had done a lot for Larry King. Um, she was told that the Omaha mayor, PJ Morgan, uh, had a lot of uh, supplies, a lot of drugs. Uh, she also writes that she, t- uh, or says that she took numerous plane trips in the direction of Larry King for sexual purposes. This is an important thing where they went to uh, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. Kansas City, Pasadena, California, hmm. on these flights for other minors. This is a big, like, sticking point of a lot of their, uh, a lot of these things that they went on flights, specific, uh, particularly yeah. to California. And um, Las Vegas, where there was some kind of, like, they almost equated it, like, buying and selling. Yeah, like, they would often auctions. even stop on the way, like, uh, Las Vegas, you know, which is uh, nearby. They would go to Las Vegas or, or uh, you know, travel uh, on the way mm-hmm. uh, there, go there, come back. Um, yes, but, uh, anyway, so yeah, then, uh, she says further, um, and according to Gary Caridori, you know, there wasn't, uh, any leading that happened here. Um, this is like what she volunteered. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, so, um, she mentioned a house on Leavenworth where there is or was a pentagram drawn on the kitchen floor. She also saw satanic pictures on the wall of this house. In addition, she said that she saw Bob Wadman coming out of this house on one occasion, um, you know, uh, and this is corroborated by Loretta Smith, as uh, is noted by, uh, you know, Gary Caridori. Mm-hmm. Um, she also indicated that she knows an individual identified as James Teddy Broom. She describes him as black with greasy hair, a flat nose, slitted eyes, and that he walks funny. She said he does dirty work for Larry, uh, last name unknown. Um and uh, Loretta actually said something similar about Teddy Broom being instrumental in satanic cult activity and that he threatened her. Uh, and uh, so this is like, you know, corroborated by a lot of the stuff that, uh, you know, uh, Loretta said, even though uh, she doesn't describe, at least uh, to Cara Dory, um, any like uh, murder uh, actually, yeah. but definitely there was uh, satanic activity. And just described. just for the record, like Loretta Smith and Alicia Owen did not know each other, right? No, uh, they did not know each other. She yeah. did know uh, Troy Bonner. Um, yes. And she did know from these events uh, and these parties first, uh, according to them. And she yeah. knew another uh, prominent victim, uh, which was uh, no relation, uh, also named King. I think Danny, Danny King. King. Danny yeah, King. But yeah. But he's not yeah. related to Larry King. Uh, exactly. But yeah. Uh, so they knew each other. But yeah, Loretta was. That was uh, totally different. Like they were not in contact. 
so it, it so. is interesting that would seem to uh, pretty heavily undercut the um, the feasibility of concocting a carefully crafted hoax if somebody who made these allegations in 1988 absolutely like had no no social relationship with this other cluster of kids who made allegations about the exact same people that were substantially very similar mm-hmm. in 1989 and 1990. Yes, right? same names, and they were very similar, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and some of those names, I guess, so like we mentioned a few of them before, but there was like Alan Bear, who was a department store tycoon in Omaha and very influential businessman. Um, there's obviously Chief Wadman, the chief of police, um, Harold Anderson, who was one of the owners of uh, or sat on the board of uh, the Omaha World Herald, Peter Citron, the columnist, of the Omaha World Herald. And, um, and and, you know, Larry King, like, yeah, he was he was pretty openly friends with all of the most the wealthiest, most powerful business people in Omaha, often referred to as uh, well, they actually have a group, a very sus sounding group called the Knights of Aksar Ben which is mm-hmm. ne- Nebraska backwards with like some hyphens put into it to make it sound, I don't know, more Egyptian or Babylonian. And it's kind of like a, I don't know, like a paramasonic fraternal uh, high society sort of group that, you know, does a lot of charity work, but like every, all of the most powerful business people in, um, in Nebraska are knights of Aksar Ben. And they do a kind of strange ritual every year where they um, like coronate one of their members. Oh, right. As they a were king. kind of, they and they kind select of were influenced by Mardi Gras. Right. I think I remember reading something about this that they, you know, cause of course in new Orleans, they have like all sorts of crazy, like Mardi Gras organizations and like uh, weird uh-huh. like rituals around like all that stuff, like uh, the coronations and things. Yeah. They have sure. kind of their own sort of weird fraternal equivalent uh yeah yeah they would do a strange thing where they would take a king which would be like one of the like the men uh you know one of the knights of axar ben and then like the queen would be selected and it would usually be like a daughter of like one of the prominent members and you know i mean this is like a ceremony but it's like it's like a creepy kind of debutante ball kind of thing of like you know, even ju- even just symbolically of, you know, the king and the queen. And there's obvious it's kind right. of a like giving your daughter to like the king of the Knights of Oxar Ben. It, mm-hmm. it, even just symbolically, yeah. it's kind of interesting. Um, right. And um, it just bears mentioning like a little bit. I want to make sure to not like blow over this. But one of the um, I think somebody who I, I think I don't know if he's a knight of Oxar Ben, but he is one of the wealthiest people in Omaha, Nebraska. This is, of course, Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. uh, the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. And he's always struck me as like a little bit uh, more than a little bit sus. Um, just this goofy old man licking ice cream cones, like living in Omaha, who's like I think was you know, one of the richest men in the world um, and uh, was just like, oh, he's so smart and like the Oracle of Omaha and all these things. But um, but what's interesting is that John DeCamp reports uh, that one of King's earliest boosters in Omaha was Warren Buffett's wife. And um, I guess they became social friends, uh, like the, the Buffetts and the Kings, um, and were close enough that uh, Warren Buffett's wife, who I guess was a popular socialite, um, uh, threw like a 10 year like wedding anniversary event at their home for uh, Larry King and his wife. And mm-hmm. later on, Warren Buffett like kind of 
would always try to distance himself from, I think he tried to deny later on that like, I don't think that party ever happened. And then there was a story that was like, Oh, his wife wanted to do it, but then Warren Buffett like shut it down and like, didn't want like, so it's like, Oh, just his wife was friends with him, not Warren Buffett. But I don't know, like Warren Buffett throughout the eighties, it's interesting. Like he did become uh, the second biggest stockholder in the Washington post and acquired a controlling, uh, financial stake in ABC television in the 80s and we had mentioned before that ABC kind of had a run on it in I think 1985 or 86 where this uh mysterious like private equity company Capital Cities who um who had a before 1980 I think its biggest like shareholder was William Casey bought out all of ABC and like took it over so I think Warren Buffett was in the mix on that financial deal. He, I think, might have bought and bought a large interest in ABC. So, I mean, it almost makes you wonder, like, was Buffett kind of a, a cutout man for buying up companies that maybe people like William J. Casey and his crowd wanted to have control over? And and if that's the case, then, you know, is is it is it easy? I don't know. Is it believable that he was not good friends with the person that, uh, like loves William J. Casey so much, Larry King and mm-hmm. was doing all these other things. I don't know. It's just, the there was also yeah. a very, there's a, a strange connection. I'll mention briefly where like Buffett had, uh, he kind of bought a paper, the Omaha sun in the early seventies when he was kind of on his, his rise up. And it was the sun that published this big financial takedown story about boys town, the Catholic, uh, orphanage charity in 1972 and they actually won a Pulitzer for this reporting and um, I guess people at the paper later said that like the idea for the story originated with Warren Buffett and he wanted to do the story to like expose um, kind of shady kind of like a little bit of financial impropriety nothing about abusing boys or anything like that but kind of questioning like you know you guys have pulled in so much money from donations but like you haven't expanded and you're you still have the same amount of people you had like 20 years ago and like where's all that money going and it was like it was it was more than a little embarrassing to boys town and so they had to do like a financial shakeup in the 70s after these articles came out and they had to kind of um I don't know. I think they had to bring in a lot of outside people onto the board to establish a kind of new era of like financial openness and blah, blah, blah. And then they rapidly expanded throughout the 70s and 80s from, I think, having about 1,000 kids on their, you know, property, compound, campus, uh, to having over like 12,000. Uh, wow. The father, Val Peter, brags about in one of their like promotional documentaries. So they, they went like a tenfold increase in the amount of kids that they had there. And then that perfectly coincided with um, Larry King kind of ingratiated himself into uh, Boys Town throughout the 80s and actually managed a lot of money uh, a lot of Boys Town's money was deposited at Franklin Credit Union. And um, and he, it seems, almost had a kind of... It reminds me of the Jimmy Savile case, um, another really horrifying uh, one that involves child abuse and Satanism, where it, because he was like this big charity guy, he got carte blanche to go into all the orphanages and hospitals and, you know, cancer wards. And, you know, it seemed like Larry King... Um, had developed a special financial relationship with Boys Town that allowed him to just, like, go there and, like, he would hire, like, boys from Boys Town to, like, work at the credit union 
in like strange capacities. And Mm -hmm. he was at the same time, like all these kids alleged was basically like going to boys town to like pick out orphans that he could sex traffic essentially. Yeah. Or invite to these parties. That's what's like, so like, like shocking about the like very hard stance against any of this stuff that like, uh, you know, uh, they've, like that the the like the media or like some people have have taken because like even the grand jury did find that he was guilty of uh you know adult pandering um you know and like that Alan Bear was uh yeah you mean the civil yeah. case from the late 90s where a 1 million dollar like oh no not, judgment. not even no. That. Oh, yeah, that that was just kind of by default like all of you know uh yeah we should definitely move on to talking about Paul Panacci at some point but you know all of his accusations by default because uh Larry King didn't contest them but even before that Larry King was sort of uh found guilty of uh yeah like uh, i'll just read this from nick bryant's book the grand jury quote found probable cause that larry king quote used money or items of value to procure men in their late teens or early 20s and thus committed the crime of pandering adult pandering but the majority of these activities occurred in the early 80s so the statute of limitations was up the grand Mm. jury prudently decided that since king was facing 40 felony counts in federal court it would defer its prosecution to the feds right should the matter pending against king in the federal system come to naught we implore state authorities to act on the overwhelming evidence against King relating to both pandering and theft offenses. So the idea, like, uh, you know, like, he was never charged with a single account of pandering anyway, but the grand jury did find it. Per- so, like, the whole idea that, like, there's nothing to this at all, even though, yeah, he used money it's, in the 80s to its procure face is, is kids ridiculous. in their teens, but, like, yeah. to say, like, you know, um, also the report noted the grand jury didn't subpoena King because he invariably would have taken refuge behind the Fifth Amendment. The report also commented on King's psychiatric malady. Evidence and testimony heard regarding the issue of King's incompetence to stand trial for his crimes have shown much disagreement on the incompetency ruling. Uh, that sounds so, very, very twinky defense. Yeah. Like Dan was, White uh, shooting Moscone and Harvey Milk. Yeah, he, um, I guess, was crazy. Um, yeah. Anyway, but, uh, yeah, so... Um, but actually, uh, I did... Uh, it was kind of an oversight on my part to not uh, put this together, but... Uh, I and I think maybe this is, is her real name. Uh, uh, Nick Bryan does talk about uh, who's called Loretta Smith in the camps book as a uh, Seanetta Moore. Um, and she did actually testify, um, mm. but she wasn't charged with perjury uh, very benevolently um, oh. because she was a 17 year old um, and uh, she was undergoing therapy at the time. Oh, I see. Um, so she wasn't legally an adult yet, so they didn't go after well, her. Well, they, they could have, but uh, yeah. they said the young woman was in their treatment of a therapist and possible prosecution would be counterproductive to further rehabilitation and would not be in the girl's best interest. So uh, very benevolently, they decided to, you know, and she did uh, say kind of that uh, it's hard for her to distinguish between reality and fantasy because of her heavy drug and alcohol use at the time. So they were like, well, we could prosecute her for perjury, but, you know, she is trying to uh, become mentally more healthy. So I think let's, you know, just let it. And they, you know, dismissed what she said. And there was another uh, person, Ulysses uh, Washington, who mm-hmm. had similar uh, allegations of a similar uh, nature. But yeah, the, the well was kind of poisoned uh, mm-hmm. because they associated them with uh, Michael Casey. And uh, one other person who they kind of smeared to sink this was uh, Kirsten Halberg, who was kind of, 
there's actually a lot of interesting information about the whole uh, Loretta uh, Smith slash Seanetta uh, uh, Moore stuff here from the point of view of, of Kristen Halberg, who was her therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually, like, pretty sad because uh, she basically, like, uh, received, like, within the hospital, as you said, like, everything's very interconnected, like, everyone's um, kind of in bed with each other. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, her supervisors at the hospital, like, just to read some of the, like, chilling uh, things that, uh, you know, uh, she was told or that happened uh, related to her kind of... She was the first person who she really opened up to. You know, she uh, even said that uh, Hallberg charted Moore's allegations about her involvement in a pornography and prostitution ring. Then she approached her supervisor about the allegations. Hallberg told her supervisor that she knew of a girl who had also attended the girls who have made similar allegations. She suggested they contact the Nebraska State Patrol. Halberg recalled that her supervisor became very agitated at the suggestion, replying that Halberg would be breaching confidentiality statutes if she single-handedly contacted the authorities. Halberg assumed her supervisor contacted the authorities and also Moore's mother, but, you know, probably uh, he didn't, or she didn't. Shanita Moore didn't really trust anybody else, and uh, she writes, uh, or Brian writes, Halberg gradually began to have gnawing suspicions that Uta Haley, that's the hospital's personnel, mm-hmm. might be covering up malfeasance, and her reservations produced some mounting discomfort. She wasn't absolutely certain her suspicions were well-founded, and there were times when she felt terrible about even having these suspicions. However, her supervisor's reaction to Moore's allegations made her extremely uneasy, and she heard unsubstantiated rumors that girls were sneaking off campus in the middle of the night. She voiced her concerns to a co-worker. Halberg's concerns quickly ricocheted back to her supervisor, who informed her that everything was fine. Halberg's supervisor also seemed to be overly concerned with the relative ease with which certain residents confided in Halberg. Her supervisor suggested that she interrupt the girls who confided in her to ask, are you sure you can trust me with this information? What? Like, you know, imagine someone comes to you to, like, tell you something Mm -hmm. about this and, like, you know, you're being told by your supervisor to say, like, can you trust me with this? Like, almost saying, like, you know... Uh, you yeah, like intim- trust me. Like, basically don't intimidate them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, all very, like, uh, upsetting uh, stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. For me, it was very clear that the case was not investigated and not pursued because of the alleged perpetrators. Those perpetrators named by the children formed a ring of rich and powerful pedophiles in Omaha. Men from industry, politics, the media, even the police. Besides Larry King, ringleaders were department store billionaire Alan Bear and the celebrity columnist of the Omaha World Herald newspaper, Peter Citron. Alan Bear was a sick fuck. Didn't care, you know, wanted sex, nasty, you know, I don't even know if you can call it sex, you know, and uh, take it any way he can get it, pay for it, he'd like to, but if he had to take it by force, he would. King would also provide underage girls for abuse. Alicia Rowan was 15 when she attended her first party. I met some guys there that were from those two. And it was at that party that I met Larry King. At the time that I met Larry King, I did not know that he was Larry King. I, I had met him. It was the first time I'd ever met him. I think there's a few people we could go through um, in terms of that had like very personal stakes. We've already gone through 
Omaha World Herald, and of course, uh, Chief Bob Wadman was accused of by Alicia Owen um, and was referenced by other people. But when I guess DeCamp, when this investigation started getting underway, uh, DeCamp went to the special agent in charge of the FBI's field office in Omaha, who is a guy named Nick O'Hara. And he, uh, according to DeCamp, he made it clear that probably his closest friend in the world was police chief Robert Wadman and that anyone who would dare to accuse Wadman of impropriety had better realize that in accusing Wadman, they were effectively taking on Nick O'Hara and the FBI. I mean, okay, so they were best friends in the whole world and uh, and rather brazen reaction by this, uh, the, this FBI guy and basically saying, you know, how dare you um, essentially, you know, even think to accuse this guy who's my friend. Um, there's another bizarre quote here uh, that about Harold Anderson, that the uh, was the former publisher of the Omaha World Herald. And I think the Herald had published, um, let me just see, um, it's on page uh, 94 here. Um uh, let's see. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, in the Kansas city star in 1990, um, after the decamp memo, um, outlining, you know, a lot of these allegations circulated, um, the Kansas city star wrote a very nasty article called former legislators, angry memo turned sober Nebraska on its ear. And, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it bemoans, you know, decamp's memo, uh, found its way to dozens of coffee machines and quickly littered the state, spawning a swirl of gossip. Hardly modest, DeCamp takes credit for convening uh, the grand juries. Quote, if it had not been for that memo, there would not even be a grand jury investigation today, DeCamp contends. DeCamp had the audacity to name, among others, Harold Anderson, former publisher of the Omaha World Herald. DeCamp left the implication that Anderson, an icon of journalism who lunches with President Bush, had a fetish (laughs) for children. Said one politician... It was like insulting God. (laughs) That that Uh, really kind of um that that I think encapsulates the attitude of people of um saying, you know, an icon of journalism who lunches with President Bush could have a fetish for children. That is, you know, that is like insulting God. And that's definitely how the government, which was it should be mentioned, like Bush was the president at this time. Uh, That's how they reacted to it at almost every level, um, with the exception of like the Foster Care Review Board and the legislative investigation, you know, in the Nebraska um, legislature and people like, you know, Gary Caridori and um, everybody else was just like incredibly, uh, as Troy Bonner said, like it will not be be, be believed. Um, and, uh, and, you know, President Bush, it should be mentioned, um, uh, Loretta Smith or... Uh, correct me, what was her... Seanetta Moore. Seanetta Moore, okay, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so she mentioned uh, being taken to the parties from the Omaha, um, the Girls Club of Omaha, which, by the way, was co-founded by another other than Larry King, um, mm-hmm. which was discovered in the investigation. Um, she describes being taken there by the Web Girls, who were some girls, I think, that were in, like, a foster home that were mm-hmm. also early alleged abuse by, like, Larry King, Um and uh, and so Nellie Webb um, also gave, um, let's see, it was, uh, yeah, Nellie and Kimberly Webb were both, um, I think, by a social worker. Um, 
uh, interviewed them. And what she said was, um, yeah, Julie Walters interviewed them, and her report said, Nellie also accompanied Mr. and Mrs. King and their son Prince on trips to Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C., beginning when she was 15 years old. She missed 22 days of school, almost totally due to these trips. Nellie was taken along on the pretense of being Prince's babysitter. Here we go. Last year, she met Vice President George Bush and saw him again at one of the parties Larry gave while on a Washington, D.C. trip. At some of the parties, there are just men, as was the case at the party George Bush attended, older men and younger men in their early 20s. Nellie said she has seen sodomy committed at those parties. At other parties during Larry trips, Larry had local prostitutes in their 20s and 30s there to entertain his male guests. At these parties, Nellie said every guest had a bodyguard, and she saw some of the men wearing guns. All guests had to produce a card, which was run through a machine to verify the guest was, in fact, who they said they were. And then each guest was frisked down before entering the party. And DeCamp just writes, this is not the last time the name of George Bush would surface in the Franklin Affair, and it's certainly not. But that's interesting. So there were kids here that saw Vice President George Bush at Larry King parties, um, including parties where, not saying, I don't think there's any, um, did Nick Bryant give any anecdotes of Bush actually seen engaging with, in any kind of sexual activity, or simply that he was, in fact, there at multiple parties in Washington? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely they were, uh, friends, but there was nothing actually, like, you know, he was close friends with, you know, Bush, and he hosted, like, a gala for him and everything, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, Bush, uh, like, praised the World Herald and everything. Yep. Uh, you he know, did. as, like, uh, yeah, they were close with that, but I don't think there was anything... Yeah, and of course, the connection that we brought up before about, you know, his presidency possibly being jeopardized by some of the stuff that were connected to him. But I, I don't at least I didn't see anything. I'm searching now for his name. Uh, I just skimming it. I don't see anything that would uh, say that, like, you know, he actually was seen doing any of this stuff, uh, you know, like uh, involved in any kind of like satanic uh, ritual, but, uh, yeah, Larry I, King was. I, yeah, I don't think um, he was, uh, yeah, I don't think he was actually ever, uh, seen, uh, by any of these kids said that, yeah, he was like at the ritual. Um, but he would kind of be present at these parties. And I think the way that some of the kids would describe them, I think in the conspiracy of Sounds documentary is that oftentimes there would be like a cocktail party and these politicos and government people would all be there. And, um, and, and some of the kids would be maybe the teenage kids might be like present for that part of the party. But then like at a certain point, like kind of the, 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 the square crowd like leaves. And then there's like a certain amount of people in the party who stick around. And then that's when like the drugs come out. And then that's when like the underage kids come out and then the party turns into like a crazy, um, I mean the things that like Troy Bonner describes Larry King doing, he was really, I think he called him like he was a sick fuck. Like, you know, um, I, I think his, his testimony of like, you know, making kids put their arms together and like dropping a lit cigarette between them. And then, and he has all these cigarette burns all over his arm that he claims were, you know, Larry King would just like put out a cigarette on him and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and uh, using, like, a squash as a sex object on, like, a 10-year-old boy um, and just really twisted shit. So it's like, 
yeah, but George Bush was there maybe, you know, an hour or two before the, the squash comes out and, and the heroin and the, and the cocaine and, and then, you know, the so people that were kind of working under him, uh, people like Donald Gregg and Craig Spence, who, you know, did brag about having Secret Service protection during a lot of this time. Um, and also claimed that uh, the midnight tours of the White House that he took some of these teenage boys on, including Paul Benassi, I think, who says in Conspiracy of Silence that he was taken by Craig Spence on a midnight tour of the White House and that uh, Craig Spence, I think, uh, let's see, yeah, Bryant says that Craig Spence said that those trips were arranged by Donald Gregg. And we, you know, we've already gone over like Donald Gray, very close to HW and uh, was actually made the uh, ambassador to South Korea um, under President Bush one and uh, was a, a CIA Phoenix program operator and uh, and involved deeply in Iran-Contra, like deeply, deeply in Iran-Contra. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like, you know, if, if you add all this together, you're seeing that Bush is like, he is present. He's present with the Contra stuff. He's present with the drugs. He's present with the pedophile rings and the, and the blackmail mm-hmm. rings and all this yeah. shit. Yeah, and the drug, like, uh, peddling, like, is, like, is like deeply enmeshed in like all this stuff like the stuff that we talked about vis-a-vis like the uh, bringing of drugs like into the country like that's all like through kind of like this is i think that it's it's you know uh makes sense to think of this as uh a a hub at least or a node in the same way as like mina arkansas yes Um, actually i wanted um, to bring that up about wadman um because uh, John DeCant makes some very interesting um, allegations about... This is from Senator Ernie Chambers, who was one of the senators who was kind of an ally of DeCamp and Lauren Schmidt in the uh, Senate um, investigation. He's actually still alive today and is still a state senator um, from North Omaha, which is like Larry King's stomping grounds. And um, he's, I think, for a long time, maybe the first and only African-American legislator and also the only openly atheist uh, legislator in the entire United States, which is very interesting that he (laughs) ends up on the side of like the Christians and the satanic panic people, even though um, he literally, I saw in 2007 sued God um, to prove a point about frivolous lawsuits. (laughs) Anyways, Uh, but he does. John DeCamp, like wasn't John DeCamp like God's lawyer or something in that. uh, I don't know if actually they faced off in that trial, but um uh, but but Senator Ernie Chambers did say some very interesting things. I just want to read this this quote, which kind of like blew me away a little bit. And he, um, December uh, 19th, 1988, as the Franklin investigation was getting underway, and he says, quote, My community is ravaged by drugs. We see the Omaha police picking up kids from 14 to 18 years old with a half an ounce or less of these narcotic substances, and that is supposed to be fighting the drugs. These are nickel and dime pushers, not suppliers, not mid-level suppliers. A few days ago, the Douglas County Sheriff got together with some of the county sheriffs, one was from Sarpy, and they made a raid and they got a pound and a half of heavy drugs, some money and some weapons. They didn't tell the Omaha police, and I talked to the Douglas County attorney, and I told him I was glad they didn't tell them, because had the Omaha police been notified, this drug bust would have never occurred. They would have told the individual they would have not gotten a substantial amount of the drugs. 
these nickel and dime people in my community that they were arresting don't have the connections or the money to bring in the amount of drugs into the city of Omaha that are coming. And certainly the little piddling amounts that are picked up by the police have no meaning or significance. When we wanted, as a community, to help organize and work with the task force of black officers to address the drug problem and the gang problem, Chief Wadman fought it tooth and nail and did not want it, wanted to deny that the problem existed. And I said the only reason that a police official would be opposed to this kind of action is because he knows something or he's part of it. And yeah, that's definitely and, the first time a cop has been like, let's not do a war on drugs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And on top of that, here we go. This is this is a little wild. I mean, uh, one of Caridori's informants told him that Wadman was instrumental in bringing the drug trafficking gangs, the Los Angeles based Bloods and Crips into Omaha. According to a June 19, 1989 report by Caridori's predecessor of the Franklin Committee, Jerry Lowe, members of the Bloods and Crips were identified by local police as driving Larry King's car. So mm. there you go. I mean, in terms of uh, spreading out these drug networks, as we talked about in like the Smuggler's Blues episode, where these the Crips and the Bloods started spreading around to all these other cities in the country and were selling cocaine and crack and everything, and suddenly they were everywhere. This allegation is that Wadman was instrumental in setting that up, and then, just like we had said, like this is a great vindication of that uh, quote-unquote like black conspiracy theory that the law enforcement and justice system and the government and the CIA, et cetera, all conspired to deliberately set up this paradigm where there'd be violent drug dealing gangs and then um, you would basically arrest the small fries and uh, throw a bunch of people in jail and make a lot of money off that. And then meanwhile, you are kind of controlling the, the ebb and flow of the drug trade because it's all coming from like CIA, you know, sources. And then, you know, linking that up with the the girl, I forget who said it, in that one allegation of going to one of these early parties where they were promised like there's so much cocaine you're going to think it's snowing. And, you know, I mean, where did that cocaine come from? It seemed like Larry King had like an unlimited supply, you know, maybe a government hook up you know um maybe you know he had a little guy from mina uh sending it up there not yeah. too far and um yeah just the, so it's like once you start digging into this there's also you know allegations uh, throughout this whole thing that larry king was laundering money for the contras <laughs> so mm-hmm. you even have that aspect of it kind of link up um where let's see there, there, yeah there's a whole scandal with like americares which uh was connected to covenant house and was lauded by the reagan and bush administrations as a showcase for the privatization of social services um and they were expanding into like guatemala and uh according to to camp says according to intelligence community sources the purpose was procurement of children from south america for exploitation in a pedophile ring um, and the flagship Guatemalan mission of Covenant House was launched by a former business partner of Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza, Roberto Alejos Arzu, who had ties to the CIA, according to the Village Voice. The Voice quoted Jean-Marie Simon, author of Guatemala, Eternal Spring, Eternal Tyranny, quote, it's like having Idi Amin on the board of Amnesty International. And uh, Covenant House is funded by Robert McCauley, founder of AmeriCares, a service organization implicated in channeling funds to the Contras, a close friend of the Bush family since Connecticut, Andover, and Yale days. McCauley has George Bush's brother, Prescott, on the AmeriCares board. And then there was a priest who was later outed as a pedophile, who's the vice president. Father Ritter was a vice president of America, uh, AmeriCares. Um, you know, so, like, 
you just see these uh, these people that are involved in Iran Contra are all involved in stuff with Larry King. I forget the name of the organization. It was like you know Americans for Freedom. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North was actually seen, at least by one witness, reported to be at a party thrown by Larry King. Yeah, there were constant rumors that uh, that King was financing the Contras and was probably laundering money uh, for the CIA and was, okay, records exist do show that Larry King was a top contributor to a Contra support committee, the Citizens for America. King's own public relations firm was also used by the Contras. Um, we might have even talked about that in our, like, uh one of our other Contra episodes. Uh, yeah, DeCamp says he also did hear a lot of reports over the years that certain people in Omaha were charging that Omaha Police Chief Bob Wadman was protecting the expansion of the Crips and Bloods into Omaha, far from their home turf in Los Angeles. Um, uh, yeah, I think Alicia Owen actually, in her statement to Cara Dory, she said that she had transported drugs from California to Nebraska uh, for uh-huh. Larry King. So I don't know if that... Like, you know, would necessarily bring the bloods in the crypt or that's, you know, but definitely like obviously the California connection is very prominent uh, because they all talk about flying to California and hundred uh, percent. You know, and there were some Hollywood so. producers, no, no, no really big names, that, like famous names, but they were going to L.A. a lot. I mean, Paul Benassi, as we'll, we'll probably get to shortly, uh, did claim to have been taken to Bohemian Grove uh, one time. And participate uh, in snuff films. Uh, oh right, yeah. We should directed by talk. Hunter S. Thompson. We yeah, give, um, give him his own. Yeah, uh, but quickly, uh, this is an interesting uh, little tidbit also about Owen on that uh, same beat. So, uh, special agent, uh, special agent Mott of uh, the FBI. He, you know, was uh, sort of painting a picture of Alicia Owen. Uh, uh, Bryant writes he painted such a sordid, pathological portrait of Owen that it was nearly impossible to distinguish her from one of Charlie Manson's harem. Um, and uh, That's, so you know, is, I, okay, yeah, go but ahead. But this, but it's interesting. Mott told the trial jury a rather fanciful tale about Owen's experiences dealing and taking LSD that made her seem a peer of Timothy Leary. Uh, he discussed Owen's clandestine visit to an acid lab and said Owen took LSD for 30 days straight. He gave the what? lowdown on an acid deal Owen attempted to put together with the Sons of Silence motorcycle gang. Mott testified that Owen planned to purchase 100 sheets of acid from the gang. Each sheet contained 100 hits of acid. Mott then brought his experience to bear and informed the jury that a hit was one dosage unit. Uh, Mott even provided detailed nuances of the deal. The Sons of Silence were wholesaling the acid to Owen at 25 cents a hit. Mott elaborated that Owen conscripted a major drug dealer in North Omaha who dealt with the Crips and Bloods to help Mm. her move copious amounts of acid. Um, so yeah, he was kind of suggesting that, uh, she was involved in, uh, you know, bringing acid over, um, through the Crips and Bloods. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe a a projection situation, but exactly. uh, I mean, cause motorcycle gangs, I mean, we'll, we probably, um, well, yeah, add them to the list because they've been instrumental. Yeah. With like Kenneth Anger and Altamont Mm -hmm. and the Hells Angels and they, they've really been instrumental in like drug trafficking, um, in throughout kind of the, yeah, the last, you know, 60, 70 years. And, uh, they pop up in strange places. I actually never heard of the sons of silence before, but, uh, I'm just yeah, glancing at them. It's, uh, name. Yeah. Also like, why was she locked in like an acid lab taking acid for 30 days straight? That sounds very like beyond the black rainbow. And uh, yeah, I don't, bizarre. yeah, exactly. Like, the fact that you uh, would think that, Oh, she's just like a scumbag druggie instead of like, 
who put her in a yeah like, under what circumstances did she end up in an underground I don't know I'm just imagining like an underground bunker or something where she's uh taking acid straight um I just wanted to mention like just interestingly that he compared her to Charles Manson because guess who spent uh, a couple years at Boys Town Orphanage when he was a young man? Wow. Uh, yep. That's crazy. There, there's a newspaper yeah. article with a photo of him, and he, wow. you know, I mean, he was kind of an orphan boy a little bit, and he spent years at uh, Boys Town, and I think there's there's decent evidence that I think he, he was probably sexually abused maybe by fellow boys there. Um, DeCamp quotes some other graduates of Boys Town from like the 60s and the 50s, 60s and 70s that said that like sexual abuse and things like that were like absolutely rampant. And mm-hmm. that I think he said even like uh, he estimated that like one in three of the adult workers there was a pedophile and mm-hmm. there was like no accountability whatsoever. And so, yeah, I mean, interesting that uh, that Charlie Manson came out of this milieu um, long before anybody suspected it, you know, and, and it should be said, like, this all came out, like, over 10 years before anybody had any confirmation about the Catholic Church being involved in an extremely vast conspiracy to cover up yeah. the abuse of children in parishes. So, like, it almost feels like, like, trite or, like, uh, trivial to sort of... Uh, dwell on that now that it's been so it's so universally accepted that that was a phenomenon but it's like that I think almost people forget that we didn't know that or that was like that was highly speculative or not really taken seriously prior to like 2002 Mm -hmm. but uh, I think definitely in the case of uh, you know calling out a place like Boys Town and having this like you know crazy uh, abuse rings that were covered up by Boys Town and etc etc um, I think it, it's pretty damn vindicating that they were on this tip, um, but also expanding broader because I think the other like meme that gets pushed about, I think the Catholic church scandal is that somehow this was a behavior that was completely unique to the Catholic church. Whereas mm-hmm. I don't actually believe that the evidence kind of backs that up. I think if you look at the, uh, the abuse rates in public schools in like boy the boy scouts my god you know um in other religious kind of groupings and things like that and uh obviously in various kind of government uh mm-hmm. contexts that um this was like a widespread interconnected uh social problem um particularly in these decades like the 70s and the 80s and uh but you know these people were there are things that were seen as absolutely unthinkable in like 1990 that Boys Town, the most like respected boys charity, um, could be right. involved in such a thing. Now it's almost like, well, duh, like you're, it, it's the least shocking thing in the world that this orphanage in Nebraska uh, was covering up, you know, abusive kids. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, yeah. uh, we're, we we just blew past two hours. Do you want to take a break now and come yeah. back and like do a Benassi? Benassi yeah. Um, yeah, Michael Casey and then Benassi, I think, like, would be good. Uh, yeah. Dive into the, the more sticky parts of the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think that's cool. Good. Yeah. Cool. All right, I'll pause it. Yeah. 